Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 296 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Congenital Advocate, an interview with Jenny Quante. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, we named this episode Congenital Advocate because Jenny Quante is one of our favorite advocates in the Lyme disease community. She has also had Lyme disease since birth. And as a result of Jenny having dealt with congenital Lyme disease for her entire life, she has become a very effective advocate. She is a registered nurse. She is a fantastic content creator where she creates educational Lyme disease and chronic illness content. But even most importantly, she is really aggressive about advocating for the Lyme disease community. And she is constantly holding us accountable and pointing out where we can do a better job of serving the community. Jenny has done a great job on her healing journey. She has a lot to offer to you. So I'm really excited to introduce to our community, congenital advocate, Jenny Quante. Jenny Quante, welcome to the Tick Boot Camp podcast. We are so excited to have you. We, as you know, we are huge fans and followers and paying attention to everything you're doing. And it's been a long time coming that we have, uh, we've been waiting to have you on the podcast. So Jenny, please, please say hello to the folks. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited too. Well, that's great. I'm glad you sound very excited, Jenny. Thank you for showing. I have a monotone voice. Like this is a, a reoccurring theme throughout my whole life where people are like, you don't sound enthused. I'm like, it's just, it, it's, I don't know if it's like my chronic pain tone or what. <laughs> so Jenny, let's give the folks a context. So uh, where are you calling in from today? Uh, San Antonio. And have you always been a Texas gal? Yep. I've only lived here and uh, college station when I went to Texas A&M for my first degree. So uh, Jenny, talk to us about your, uh, your childhood and what it was like to grow up uh, in Texas. Uh, it was a lot better being here than it is now in the climate of everything going on. Um, but I, I had a good childhood. I had very loving parents, um, unconditional love and support at home. Um, safe space, uh, loving brothers, big families. We spent a lot of time um, out in the Texas Hill Country, which probably explains a lot of why I have so many tick-borne infections or, or have had so many in my life. Um, it's, I've traveled a lot. Like I was privileged in my upbringing to where we would do like road trips, um, but we mostly stayed at, like in Southern states, but we did make our way to like California and stuff sometimes. Um, so I've definitely been to a lot of the endemic states as well. So I don't know, it all ties back in when I think about it, like how many times I've probably been exposed just from being like taken on outdoor trips. Cause we would do like snorkeling and hiking. And that was just like our, average thing so let's talk about the uh, safety precautions if any you were taking on these various trips so i'm assuming when you were going snorkeling you were given safety instructions so you wouldn't drown while you were snorkeling were you likewise given safety instructions about how to keep yourself safe from ticks and tick diseases no i honestly never saw or heard any like public health PSA like sign or promotion or like um, commercial like anything like that my entire life until I don't even know like just the past few years and I still don't even know if I really see that kind of stuff in Texas like it's mainly like watch out for snakes 
when we're out and about um because that was always the thing that as far as like being outdoors because like I did Girl Scouts my brothers did Boy Scouts and like I said we were raised we had you know land out in the country um and like I also come from a hunting family and you know ticks are all over deer but no one ever it was like so much emphasis on snakes but no emphasis on like other things like ticks and then um no education on a lot of vector-borne illnesses when I'd go like for snorkeling and stuff because my parents would scuba dive but I was too little so I'd snorkel so like for example we went to Honduras and I remember I had to get some vaccines before we went when I was like second grade but the only thing that really stuck out is they put me on anti-malarials and and then we like you know don't drink the water while you're there but that was like it and it's like who knows with I was immunocompromised then so he's like who knows how much I brought back into my microbiome and then like contributed to me being so sick the rest of my life just from travel like that and just the only thing they were talking about was like oh you may get malaria so let's put you on anti-malarials but that was it it's like just no and my mom's a nurse so it's like she's always been super big on public health like I was the kid with a mouth guard I because my dad's a dentist like I was the kid with a helmet and elbow and knee pads like wearing the like glow in the dark vest if you're gonna go run at night like my parents are always on top of that public health safety stuff. So it's just so disappointing in hindsight that none of it was discussed so that even parents who were like actively trying to take care of their kids with preventative measures, like the, just the education wasn't ex- out there accessible and it still even, really isn't. Even to medical professionals who were, who are parents. Yeah. That's what I'm, yeah. It's, it's like. Just, and Jenny, you know, and that's actually that's actually uh, very different than my childhood. I mean, we didn't have any snakes here on Long Island when I grew up, uh, but ticks were a big part of our lives. And I can tell you that my mother was very aggressive about warning us about ticks, about trying to discourage us from going to places where we could uh, come in contact with ticks and was very aggressive about making sure, especially when I came in from wooded areas, to make sure that I would go into our little bathroom, take off my clothes and check myself for ticks. And I often found ticks on me because that was a big part of my childhood. And I'm an old man. We're talking about going back, you know, 50 years ago, we were doing that. So, you know, there is a huge contrast, cultural contrast between the information that was available to us on Long Island and the information that was available to your folks who were probably my age and raising you when you were, you know, when you were a child, not even having that information available to you during your childhood. That seems, seems, you know, interesting that there was such a cultural divide with the information that was available. Oh yeah. The, the focus in Texas is like snakes. And then we, you know, everyone loves to ignore parasites, but one thing you can get hand to Texans is that we know that standing water in the summer is incredibly dangerous and that you're at very high risk for even like brain eating amoebas. So those are like two things where like, if you are from here, you know, not to get like the water in Austin, like when people come from California, they end up getting like horrible rashes and infections and it's just like everyone here knows like that's what it's like it's so normalized here like don't go in the water but no one knows anything about ticks like ever like I I get people who reach out to me from childhood who are like you know doctors don't know what to do like they especially when it's people who are darker skin like I have a black friend who just reached out and was like I'm scared that when I go to the 
pediatrician, they're going to gaslight me because my daughter's rash, like the bullseye rash changed colors just within the same day. And she was like, you know, like freaking out. It's like, like no one should have to worry like that when it was like a perfect bullseye rash too. Like, but it's just like, yeah, it's interesting how living, even though I was always outdoors as a child and like playing in piles of leaves, like things that you, now I cringe when I see other parents let their kids do it, but it was like a free for all. Like we had no idea that it was dangerous. And I don't really know people who grew up pulling ticks off of themselves unless they were like in the military. Um, Cause like San Antonio, like we host so many military members here, um, active duty and veterans. So that's really the only population that I heard it from a lot. Uh, but of course now we know they're everywhere. So it's growing, but yeah, growing up, we never talked about tick safety at all. And even in scouts, it's like both my brothers are um, Eagle scouts. And it's like, you know, they learned so much like survival wilderness stuff and they still didn't talk about ticks. And they would go hiking in other states for like trips. They went to Alaska. They'd go, you know, the four corner states and like California and no talk about tick safety. It's wild. It is wild. And it's and it's wild that uh, that even most people in the military are not trained on how to keep themselves healthy from ticks. And we, we interviewed uh, Colonel uh, Malakowski on this podcast, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the top gun, the, you know, the first. Yeah. Um, yeah, first Thunderbird um, pilot in Europe, female Thunderbird pilot in, in the U.S. And she got sick on maneuvers. She became, you know, she became, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, director of a camp. I don't remember what her title was. Again, she was a colonel. Uh, and uh, she took her, she took her, um, her folks out on maneuvers. And uh, she ended up getting bitten by a tick and getting sick. And she wasn't trained on how to protect herself from that, even in the military. So it is odd, I will tell you again, from a cultural standpoint and growing up the way we grew up, that there, you know, that there was so little, so little information to most of the rest of the community. Now, I, it could just be that I had this crazy Italian mother who was just, you know, concerned about everything, and you know, she read about ticks in the newspaper, and that was something that she, you know, she she was very aggressively concerned about. But the other part of it with, with for us was we'd find ticks on our companion animals. Our dogs would have ticks on them all the time, and we had we had this tick kit. As you walk into our house, you know, our side door, which, by the way, you'd never go in the front door in Italian mother's house. So as you're going in the side door. There was this janky tick kit that had Vaseline and tweezers and, and matches. And we would, you know, when we came in the door, we'd be checking ourselves and checking around us before they before they would come into the house. So, I mean, that's how far advanced we were 50 years ago, Jenny. Than, wow. uh, than than folks are, you know, folks are e even today in, in some parts of New York. So. Um, to talk to us about your passion for nursing, uh, folks know that you're an RN because of, uh, you know, your, your leadership in the community, you're well known, but talk to us about when you became, you know, passionate about the uh, medical community and how that, how that developed for you. Uh, I've always loved medicine and healthcare, uh, always knew that's what I wanted to go into. And I'm sure a big part of that was just my dad being a dentist, my grandpa was a dentist, my mom being a nurse, um, but I originally wanted to be a veterinarian and my brothers immediately like squashed that. And they're like, you are so attached to animals. Like you would not be able to cope, like scratch that. And so I was like, okay, you're right. Like I would just like cry every day at work. So yeah. then I thought I wanted to be pre-dental um, because my dad just loves his career so much. And he says like, I love making people confident in their smiles and like helping, you know, just like self, it's such a 
he felt, finds it to be like a beautiful way to like help people with their self-confidence, you know, and, um, and approach it in a gentle way that like a lot of traditional dentists don't. Um, but I, since I got six so young, I developed severe tremors. So by the time I was in my first year of college, I was pre-dental, uh, and I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't even hold my hands still. Like my hands were always like this growing up. And so then I changed that summer. Like I went home and like, you know, like cried to my parents, like, what am I going to do? And then I just like really thought on it for like a month. And I was like, I was like, you know, I feel like nursing is a better way to serve my community because it just would always lead me back to my mom and how the whole time I've been sick. And even before, like, since I'm congenital, like I had periods of like flares and remission all growing up, mainly factored from like living in mold. But anyway, um, we'll get there. I promise. Yeah. But like in hindsight, it's just my mom is the reason why I decided to apply to nursing school, because I just started thinking about like all growing up because I was very sick at that point when I was like 19. And I was like, wow, like. She devoted her whole life to trying to help her sick kid when like doctors just gaslit, not only me, but even her. And like my dad would have to go to appointments with us because that the only way to get people to listen was because of him. And so it's just, she never gave up and she was so fierce in her advocacy. And I was just like, I knew I wouldn't have been alive that long at that point. So I was like, I just wanna be that same fierce advocate for other people so on some level you didn't have much of a choice you're the daughter of a doctor and a nurse so genetically you just had uh you had all the tools and onto a medical career you found yourself and uh, i think it was wise not to uh uh ignore your brother's admonition that you not uh go go the vet route because uh crying every day probably wouldn't be healthy for you or your immune health so okay i will say when you work if anyone listens to this, that's a nurse, especially working in the hospital, uh, you will cry a lot when you work as a bedside nurse. So, um, but once you leave bedside, it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> so Jenny, talk to us, uh, talk to us about where you went to college and, and, and what was that experience like for you? Uh, so I went to Texas A&M university. Um, I graduated after three and a half years. Congratulations. And, Great school and, and short, uh, short window. I, I took summer school every summer to uh, get ahead. I kind of, since I got sick so young, the only part of my life I could really control was my grades, like my education, because I'd always done well in school growing up. So I just like, I dove into school. Um, and like, that was like my focus to try to get through everything else. Um, so yeah, I, was happy to like do summer school and just have like a distraction from treatments and being sick. So I graduated from AM and then uh, my degrees, it, it was allied health was my major. So my degree is just in health, bachelor of science in health. And then I started nursing school back in San Antonio at the health science center here um, three weeks later. And that was a two-year bachelor program. So then I got my BSN and then two years of working bedside as a blood cancer nurse. I got my national certification, uh, OCN and oncology nursing. So it's just like an extra certification within your specialty that's credentialed 
Um, so that's my educational background. All right, so let's now build out your, your, um, your health journey, right? You said that you were having health challenges on and off from a very early age. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna ask you to look back now and talk to us about when you believe you first started to exhibit symptoms of what you now know to be your tick diseases. So from my mom's point of view is how it would really start because it's before I have any memory. Um, when I was a toddler, she said that I would have bouts of chronic UTIs. And when they would do, they sent me a specialist and they do like renal function and imaging and everything was normal. And it's like, okay, well, chronic UTIs can be a manifestation of living in mold and Lyme and Bartonella. And <clears throat> then I would have- uh, You were not diagnosed with any of that at that time, right? No, like okay. as far as- everyone was concerned, like my pediatrician and parents, I was perfectly healthy. Um, you looked good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but even like basic, you know, labs and physicals, like everything was just in my interactions with my age group and everything, everything was just normal. Uh, but when I had these acute phases of issues and then I would get like chronic yeast infections. Um, I would have some GI issues. And then my mom said when I was little, and then I finally remembered this part of like kindergarten where like you couldn't get me to nap. It's like, I was never, I'm not neurodivergent and I didn't, I don't have ADHD, but I manifested that hyperactivity of like, like the, I can't think of the word right now, but when you're like, in overdrive like during the day when you should be coming down from it um so from from the get-go I've always had issues with sleep like just my whole entire life it just got severely disabling when I was 14 um and then when I was in elementary school I had periods where so I got scratched by a cat in first grade and then within like a year or two I was living in mold at that time and we didn't know and within a year or two, I started to develop like severe shin pain and heel pain, which are, you know, common manifestations of Bartonella. But of course the pediatricians like told my parents, you know, it's normal, it's growing pain. She's just an athlete. Um, basically just like diminish, I guess like gaslit my parents into denying that I was suffering from a debilitating pain. And I place no blame on my parents. Like they still believed me and didn't tell me to like, calm down or anything, but it's just so obvious. Once you finally get your diagnoses, when you look back on like your childhood, if you've been sick that long, it's just like, wow, everything makes so much sense now. Um, but I would say when I was, and then I had a lot of issues with like yo-yoing with my weight. And again, that was just like the mold. Uh, but then when I was 14, my eighth grade summer is when I like officially became chronically ill and disabled. Uh, the disability part started almost overnight. I just woke up one day and I started having debilitating knee pain. It was May, 2007, um, but I was training for JV volleyball for high school at the time. So again, it was dismissed to me being an athlete, but, and I saw a pain or a orthopedist no, he wasn't with me. Sorry. I saw a doctor who works for the Spurs, a Spurs doctor. And he was like, oh, it's just growing pains. Like you can play through the pain. Or so when, you can... when you say that, Jenny, when you say the Spurs doc, you mean a doctor who treats professional basketball yes. players, correct? Yeah. Okay. An NBA physician. 
obviously I'm not gonna like name shame but it's just like that's how I mean so many people have these stories where it's just like really prestigious doctors who take care of important prestigious people and it's just like they don't even know the reality of this because it's like debilitating knee pain overnight like Lyme disease should be included in a differential immediately regardless of where you live especially in children um anyway so he it was just this was the worst advice I could have heard from the get-go is to tell a you know a child going through puberty who's like wanting to fit in like you can play through the pain if you want it won't make it worse or you can rest and like hopefully you'll get better but you won't make it worse if you keep playing and so that was just like a horrible toxic mindset that I went into being disabled like as a 14 year old it's like it just made me worse trying to play through the injuries um and then within like two to three months I started having like severe insomnia like I was staying up till five or six a.m and then I was sleeping through school all day. Um, and I started having a lot of depression and anxiety issues. And then I started manifesting a lot of symptoms of babesia, like the drenched sweats. Um, but, you still didn't know, but you didn't know that at the time, right? No, like okay. we just had no idea. And they, it's hard for me to remember because I think it's just like, part of it is I was just so sick and like, neuroborreliosis it's like it's hard to remember a lot of what happened and I was so young that my mom was handling most of the medical like conversations and scheduling and all that but then also it's probably a contribution of like complex PTSD where part of it's like blacked out because it's just so traumatizing to like think back well, on yeah or just emotional rationalization that's that's how our mind protects us by allowing yeah. us to forget the pain that we are in during during different phases of our lives yeah, but I do remember, like, I saw the typical specialists of, like, pediatric rheumatology, and, like, they ruled out, I was diagnosed with arthritis, but they never even tested me for Lyme. Like, my mom straight up asked, within two years of, like, doing all her own diligent research, she was like, I want, I think my daughter might have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and or Lyme disease, and he just straight up refused to rule them out, and it's like, okay, at the time, you know, seeing a pediatric rheumatologist, we thought like, who else do you even go to? Like, that's who you should go to for this when it, and so we, you know, trusted his willful ignorance because he was very determined to make my mom feel like she was foolish for her pursuit, even though like most moms, they're always right when it comes to their child's health needs. Um, they're just oh, they're right about everything, not just their children's health. They're yes. Right okay. That's true. That's true. Uh, but it's just like, that's something that I will, like a hill I will die on is that mom should always be the first person listened to when a kid is, I mean, other than the kid themselves, but like always trust a mom's instinct and her concern, like never downplay it because the mom's always right. <laughs> um, I don't even know where I was going. That's so, part sorry, of the problem. Yeah, let me, let me, so let me tell you where I, where I'd like you to go. Let's, let's, let's get to the end of the diagnostic journey. How old were you when you were diagnosed with Lyme disease? And just give us a, 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 an age first, because I want to build up to that. Okay. Uh, I got diagnosed when I was 26. Okay. So you've given us an outline of how you were s struggling with different health issues. You had the sort of ebb and flow of of health issues during your early childhood. You're 14 years old, you become chronically ill. Your, your doctor and nurse 
mom and dad are taking you from doctor to doctor. You land at a um, a, a pediatric rheumatologist who um, ignores your mother's particular request for diagnostic testing. Uh, you know, even if he had given you a Lyme test, who knows what that would have resulted in. Yeah. But that's, again, a conversation we'll have in a minute. So how does the rest of your life develop between now, I guess you're 14, 15, 16 years old, and now when you finally get diagnosed? Um, a lot of suffering and misery and confusion and anger. Uh, he, that same physician, because I'd also seen dozens of orthopedists because my main issue, like, of course I had systemic issues, but my main disability from Lyme was knees, the knees and then needing knee surgeries. And I had to see dozens and dozens of doctors before someone knew what was wrong, synovitis to do the surgery. Uh, so that doctor, the pediatric rheumatologist, I think I was 17 by that time. And I'd already had both knee surgeries. He diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And that was my blanket label from age 17 to 26. And in that meantime, I kept seeing doctors, not getting any help, and then switched to an adult primary once I was 19, because, um, you know, never got any help from my pediatrician. And then he did so many different modalities with me. Like he's very big on integrative medicine. He's part of why I'm so into integrative medicine, because seeing my own medical doctor embrace it really made me embrace it even more. Um, and I tried everything in Western and holistic medicine that you would do for something like fibro. And I never made any progress. Like I didn't even want to be alive. I was so miserable. And then finally he tested his sickest patients for tick-borne diseases. And we all came back positive, like all his sickest patients who weren't making any progress with whatever diagnosis diagnosis they had at the time. So that's how I finally got diagnosed. So a good, a good doctor. <laughs> and, and Matt's going to spend some more time building that out with you, but let's, let's stay with the fibro for a minute. So that seems to be like this catch-all diagnosis that uh, doctors love to give to folks. Give me your reaction first to the, the diagnosis generally, because we've been taught that it's actually um, considered a mental disorder rather than a physical disorder, right? You're somebody who has symptoms without a cause. Uh, so how does, how does it feel to be diagnosed with you know, this sort of catch-all diagnosis? And what did it mean to you when you were first diagnosed with that? It was frustrating and hard because even as a teenager, I understood that giving someone an idiopathic diagnosis was doing a disservice to them uh, because I knew it meant we don't, like I was told that, you know, like a trigger of me starting JV volleyball is what like flared the fibro to come out of dormancy or whatever but I still knew I was like and grew up telling people like I have a blanket label of fibromyalgia they don't really know what's wrong with me and I want to make sure that I preface to people that like if you've been diagnosed with that like your suffering is real it is physical it's a horrible way to have to live but I think it is a blanket diagnosis in general, and that all infectious diseases and connective tissue disorders should be ruled out before you're ever given that diagnosis. And I think it's very negligent of physicians to diagnose that as a primary diagnosis. Okay, so let's pause there for a second. So, so A, do you believe anyone should ever be diagnosed with fibro? And B, do you think it's really just sort of medical laziness where 
you know the patient has symptoms, you know they're real, but you, you're, you're just, I guess, giving up on trying to find the cause of those symptoms. I think it's probably too soon to say something like, oh, it's not real. Um, because but they're not saying that, right? They're not saying that. They're saying it is real. You have real symptoms. You are yeah. sick. You have physical symptoms, but we don't know what's causing it. So we're going to give yeah. you this. We're going to give you this. You were calling it a blanket diagnosis. I'll call it a bucket diagnosis. Well, you know, we're pouring you into something because we don't know what it is. And, and my argument is this sounds like they're being lazy. They don't want to continue to do the work to find out what's causing oh, yeah. the symptoms. So we'll give you, we'll give you this, we'll give you this blanket label. We'll say that you have a disorder rather than a disease. And they're saying it's an emotional disorder that's causing symptomology rather than rather than saying, I'm going to do the hard work that needs to be done in order to be able to figure out what's wrong with you. And if I can't do it, I'm going to help you to find other people that can, can help you figure it out, right? Don't you think that's what a good medical professional would do, Madam RN? <laughs> yeah, you would hope. Um, but I think part of why I don't want to like do away with the diagnosis completely, like from my opinion, is because I come from a medical opinion of I just think about like the hell of our for-profit healthcare system where like you need an ICD code. So, and like healthcare access to healthcare is a privilege. Having a diagnosis period, whether it's a blanket label or a root cause is a privilege. Okay. So sometimes people may have to have that diagnosis just so they can get access to basic care, whether it's just like pain medication or massage therapy. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I think it's important to still include it in the conversation, but I think it is a huge, huge, huge disservice and very lazy. And I don't know if it's, if it's just straight up negligence or borderline negligence, but because it's dangerous because like how many people become chronic and or die from the disease or taking their own life from the suffering because they weren't just properly investigated for in common vector-borne diseases and they could have gotten healed or into remission or just improved quality of life if they had just had a doctor who did more than the bare minimum or was honest and said, like, I can't help you. No, I, but I, I really liked your answer, right? Because I, I, I really dislike the whole fibro diagnosis. But you know what? You, you've now given us an argument about why fibro <laughs> is an important diagnosis because we want to make sure that people have access to the treatment that the system can yeah. make available to folks. But the problem, I guess, may be uh, now that you've persuaded me, and, and again, folks on our, on our platform know that you're good at calling us out, and that's one of the reasons why we love you, because the, we, the way we get better and the way we can serve the community better is by having people like you who care about us and call us out when we're falling, falling short. So I appreciate the way you, you, know, you, you just answered that question. But I guess, the, I guess my follow-up now that you've done that is, um, do we put ourselves in a position where we're giving doctors an, an excuse to continue to be lazy because they've now given us a code that gives everyone the tools they need to treat this, but all right, now you have fibro, so we don't have to look any further. Yeah, there's, there's so much nuance to it. It's, it's, it's a hard conversation to have. Um, I think like, even if someone can at least get that as an initial diagnosis and then be educated on like, hey, these are all possibilities of what, like you may have small fiber neuropathy, 
So like, if you can afford to go to a neurologist, like I would, or if you, you may have Lyme disease or Bartonella, like if you can afford to go see a Lyme doctor, I would, or, you know, you may have Ehlers-Danlos or you may have MCAS, like, you know, if you can afford to go see an immunologist or an allergist, it's like, at least it can give them a step into the system. Um, but I agree, like there needs to be heavy emphasis and education on this is not a root cause diagnosis and it's only going to get you so far in the door and help you only, it's only going to help you so much. So that's a huge thing of part of why I'm so passionate about nursing is because like a pillar of nursing is the patient education. And like, that's a huge issue between physicians and patients. And like where we fill the gap is we provide a lot of reinforcement and education that the doctors almost kind of just expect the average layperson to know. And it's just like, the average person in the country has a fifth grade reading level. Like you can't expect people to know even where to go for more answers. Like if you like, so what you're saying, if you just say, Hey, it's fibro, well, then they may just suffer with that for the rest of their life and not get any improved quality of life because no one told them like, look further. So Jenny, you, you had this experience during your childhood where your mom was suspicious of tick-borne illness, but your pediatric um, rheumatologists refuse to test you. And I, again, I just find it weird that, you know, a, a medical professional would ignore the request of his medical colleagues, a doctor and a nurse asking that this test be given, but ultimately you do get diagnosed with tick-borne illness. How did you go from a doctor refusing to test you to finally being tested for tick-borne illness? Um, so my mom never gave up on researching. Uh, and I think, Digging down the rabbit hole of fibromyalgia partially helped lead her back to Lyme again. And then in combination with no one ever mentioned Lyme to me again, but then a classmate in nursing school mentioned it. And she was like, it sounds like you have Lyme disease. And so then it got it back into my head. Cause again, I got sick so young that when they told my mom, like you're ridiculous for assuming she has, it doesn't exist. And he literally said Lyme doesn't exist in Texas. Um, so, you know, I just listened. I was a kid. Uh, we, you know, I was really raised with doctor knows best. Um, and, and we then, all were. We all were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, in our culture, we, we hold, we all hold doctors in high regard. And, and in most cases, like people like your dad uh, should be held in high regard, but it doesn't mean that we should be handing our health to other people, right? No, your doctor needs to earn your trust, people. Uh, I'm a firm believer of that. Uh, anyway, so then the other thing is, Gosh, I still have so much brain fog. <laughs> so, so Jenny, let me let me. So, we, we were talking about we were talking about the uh, your time in nursing school and, uh, yes. and somebody recommending that you have Lyme disease. But before you before you go on to that, because another question pops into my head, and I just sort of have this stream of consciousness. Were you studying tick-borne illnesses as a nursing student? Meaning, were they nope. teaching you anything about that? And if you weren't, how did this how did this classmate of yours say, "Hey, you sound like you have Lyme disease" when you guys weren't being taught anything about Lyme disease? Yeah, no, we did not talk about, and like we didn't talk about vector-borne diseases much at all in nursing school. Um, definitely no mention of like tick-borne infections. Didn't even talk about babesiosis either. So let's build this out. You went to one of the top schools in the country. You went to Texas A&M and, <laughs> and you did not get any information at all about vector diseases. So, so that was my undergrad, my Bachelor of Science in Health. Uh, but then my Bachelor of Science in Nursing was at the UT Health Science Center, San Antonio. Um, 
which is actually a really prestigious um, health science center. We have so many graduate schools and doctoral schools, uh, and it's one of the top nursing schools um, in the country. Like, not one of, like, the top 10, but we are, like, you know, ranked, like, 44 in the country or something. So I went to a really good nursing school. um, And? Nothing in nursing school about it uh, at all. And honestly, a little, well, I don't want to like, since I already named my school, but whatever. I even reached out because I was a tutor in nursing school and I reached out to them and I was like, hey, can I like give a guest lecture to your nursing school of the students about, or like talk to someone in the tutoring, like peer mentor program that I was part of so that they can teach like the next cohort and then they can just keep passing the education on. I was like, I'll, you know, give a lecture on tick-borne diseases on what nurses need to know. And then I just like never heard back. I was like, gosh, I'm trying. <laughs> well, so so why do you think this colleague of yours, um, who was, you know, you who, who you're interacting with, suggested you might be suffering from Lyme disease? Um, I honestly, I think it was because she knew someone else who had a story similar to mine and she was also chronically ill and disabled. So she's just, you know, in that world already. And she was a paramedic before she went to nursing school. So just like very literate in all aspects. Um, And I've always been very open about my health, even when I got sick as a teenager. Like I've never tried to like hide that I'm chronically ill and disabled. And I let people sit with their, uh, discomfort when I am raw about the reality of being sick. So I was open about that in nursing school. And, you know, I even had disability accommodations for like testing. So she knew my story. So I think it's just like hearing my story and then knowing that she had heard someone else with the same story, but she didn't, I wish that she had like aggressively pushed it on me the way that I do to like other people, especially because we were more than just like, we were friends. So it's like, you know, be aggressive and get me tested. So, but obviously no fault to her. Like it's, wonderful she mentioned it but that was 2015 and I didn't I didn't get diagnosed for three more years (laughs) so uh it was really like a combination of all that and then I just got very lucky and I have a primary who is a true healer and spends so much of his time researching what's going on in medicine in Europe and like I think it's just he's really big on like uh IV ozone and um, so he's, you know, looked at Germany a lot. Well, who takes tick-borne diseases seriously? Germany does. So I think that kind of led him down the path of Lyme disease a little. And so then he was like, you know what? Like, and he always promised me from ages 19 to 26, like, I know you're sick and miserable, but I promise I won't ever give up. We'll find out why you're not getting better because I am privileged enough to where like my dad was able to just keep paying. I mean, of course there's a burden financially, but he was still paying, able to pay for me to do a lot of integrative treatments that should have improved my quality of life, but I made no, had no response to. So that all together, I, I kind of just got lucky. I don't know how much longer it would have taken me to get diagnosed if I didn't have him. I'd hope I'd be diagnosed by now. <laughs> so what, um, what type of uh, test was used to diagnose you? Hygienics. And then I've, since then, when, uh, since I did treatment in Mexico, I don't remember what panel that Sanabeev uses, but they tested me. And then since I did OSOT, my labs have been sent out to the uh, lab in Greece 
So, and then I've done all my follow-ups here with Vibrant. So I've done four different companies. Okay. So let's pause that for one more second before Matt starts to, he's jumping out of his chair because he has so many questions to ask. Rich, you're killing me, Rich. Come on. Before Matt jumps out of his I'm chair. Sorry. I just, I ramble so much. I'm no, you don't. Worse. You're not rambling at all. This, this is fantastic. So, so Jenny, um, what was your emotional response to finally getting a diagnosis? Um, relief, for sure. Um, it's relief in like two different ways. Because like one, it meant, I, at least I thought it meant navigating the medical system was going to get easier. Um, I didn't, I did not know all the co controversy yet behind like chronic tick-borne infections. Um, and then just what every chronically ill person goes through is like people just questioning your reality and whether you're actually as sick as you are. So when you finally get a proper diagnosis, it's just like this big wave of relief where it's like, like I said, it's a privilege to finally get your proper diagnosis. And so it's just like, wow, like someone finally listened and went out of their way to help me. And now hopefully this means things are going to turn around now because I spent most of my life knowing I was misdiagnosed and just not knowing what the heck to do from there. Cause I was a kid. <laughs> um, so in hindsight, I'm like, I should have known it was like a lot of pros and cons to getting the diagnosis, but I felt just the pros of it at the time. But Jenny, you're not alone. When I first got diagnosed with Lyme disease, I didn't even know what it was. Never mind that it can be a chronic, persistent, debilitating infection. I'm like, what is this, right? So mm -hmm. that's that's most people, unfortunately. It's not uncommon. And that's something we're together trying to change. But walk us through your over a 12-year journey from the time you were 14 to 26 to get your diagnosis, when you did the hygienics test with your doctor, did you just look for Lyme disease or were you looking for co-infections as well at this time? We did co-infections as well. Um, I came back positive for Babesiosis, uh, so Babesia microti and Babesia duncani, early chiosis and tick-borne relapsing fever, and then I think I had like 13 different strains of Borrelia. So that's, that's not, you know, not bad at all in the scheme of things, right? 13 strains of Lyme, two species of Babesia, Ehrlichia, tick-borne relapsing fever. You know, that's, that's a, that, that sounds like that would cripple anybody, Jenny. My goodness. <laughs> Come on. So again, when obviously for you, because you were new to this, this really couldn't make much sense. But your doctor who was studying all of this overseas work and studying tick-borne illness and who was getting, you know, becoming Lyme woke and tick-borne illness woke, did he realize how severe these diseases were and the reality of what your treatment journey ahead was going to be like for you? Not yet. Uh, he's fully on board now. Like he's read, he read Chronic before I did. He read uh, Bitten before I did. So he's really like, it's just, he's a primary, so he'll never have the opportunity to dive into this the way like a Lyme literate physician can. Um, but no, at the time he just did me on all the traditional, he understood that I needed to do like at least six weeks versus like, you know, oh, here's a week or two of doxy. Um, and again, he was uh, well-versed enough to know that he needed to do a full panel for co-infections as well. Um, and so I just did six weeks of all the traditionals of hitting everything I labeled and it knocked out tick-borne, it knocked out everything except both Babesia strains, uh, Borrelia burgdorferi and 
yeah, that's it. Everything else was able to be knocked out with the traditional treatment, thankfully. Um, but then I treated with, so I did that and then I did, and I got so sick on that. And then I did Buner's protocol with him, but at the time still had no concept of opening my detox pathways. Like I was pooping once a week. Like it's just, it was, I was not going to make any progress doing that. Um, so I did Buner's for like a year, Buner protocol didn't make any progress. And so then finally, I don't know if it was like at his push or my mom's push or what, because I was so sick at the time, but then I finally, January, 2020 is when I started seeing my Lyme doctor. So, so treated, yeah. Sorry, Jenny, I just want to recap that. So you did doxy for six weeks, which got rid of the tick-borne relapsing fever and you, or lichia, but left a lot of the Lyme and the two species of Babesia behind. And then yeah. you did about a year of the Buner protocol, which is an herbal protocol, right? That's supposed to knock out Lyme and tick-borne illness. Yeah. But I didn't do just doxy when I did my original, like I was on like three different antibiotics and I was on, I don't know what hydroxychloroquine. Um, I don't remember what other antiparasitic I was on, but like we hit it hard. Um, but I just, I, of course, when you're like one, I'm congenital, obviously like PO antibiotics aren't going to do anything for me for Lyme. And then Babesia, it's, I'm still not even in remission with that. So like the traditional antiparasitics weren't going to hit that since that I've been symptomatic of that since high school. So I knew it was going to take a long time for that too. Well, now I know that. But the fact that this was a regular primary care doctor who was just learning as he went along about Lyme disease, I think he did a pretty good job at diagnosing oh, yeah. you, treating you with this cocktail of antibiotics, knocking down some of the pathogenic load that you had in your body from this congenital Lyme and tick-borne illness. And then to put you on an herbal remedy afterwards, I think it's very interesting also that a primary doctor would put you on the Buna protocol, right? So I think that's a really great start that you were off to, but you weren't doing anything to really detox or open up your drainage pathway. So were you feeling any better at the end of this, you know, a little over a year, a year plus six weeks of antibiotics, or were you feeling kind of like worse because of all, all of the toxins building up in your body from all the treatment you got? Um, up and down. Like, of course, when I was like herxing acutely way worse. And then I just like go back to baseline of just perpetual suffering that I was already feeling. And then depending on where I was living at the time, like I am so sensitive to mold that I would get progressively worse. Like every time I was back in moldy housing, like just in that time frame of treating with him. So I just, there was no hope for ever making progress if I was actively living in mold and pooping once a week and you know, all of that, like, did you have the mold picture at that point or did that come later no. on where you realized, okay, so that was later. Yeah. Uh, and what about the congenital Lyme, Jenny? Was that something that you were aware of at this point or did that come later in your story as well? Where you learned that later. Okay. So talk to us about your transition over to the Lyme literate medical doctor in January of 2020. Are you comfortable sharing his or her name first? Uh, yeah. My Lyme doctor is Amy Offit. She's on the ILADS board. And walk us through what that was like, Jenny, compared to your really helpful primary care physician in comparison, right? What, leaving this primary care doctor and going to a Lyme medical doctor, just the, the differences you notice that you can share with our audience. So I'm, again, a fortunate case where my parents were able to afford to actually let me see both doctors because my Lyme doctor is two hours each way from me. Um, so, you know, that's just not feasible. And then going to see her is like hundreds of dollars more per appointment than him. So anything I could do in San Antonio through my primary, cause he has an infusion clinic as well at that a nurse practitioner runs. So I was able to do a lot of stuff 
through my primary, like based off what she would suggest, um, Dr. Offit. So wait, Jenny, uh, your primary care doctor put his, his ego aside and was taking feedback from a specialist to help treat you. Oh yeah. They, that's super rare too. I mean, come on. That's like, that's amazing. Generally doctors, when that happens, they're like, <laughs> see ya, peace out. Right. I mean, so I that, know. That's, that's surprising to hear. And it's, he's just an amazing physician and just so a thirst for knowledge and like not afraid to be humbled and like knows that it's teamwork between the patient and the provider and that egos from doctors get people killed. Like it's the exact opposite of the oath you swore to take to protect people as a physician, um, do no harm. So he's definitely a great example of what I wish that every physician um, could strive to be. And I think that he already does amazing things, but I think that he, he almost reminds me of like a mini Dr. Horowitz where like he loves root cause medicine, but he just doesn't have, and I mean, I know Dr. Horowitz is so busy and inundated with patients as well, but it's like when you're a primary and you literally have like probably over a thousand patients, like it's not the same. And your age range is like 18 to 80. Like it's not the same as be able to do as much in this specialty as Horowitz can do. Um, but he's, he definitely reminds me, even though I don't know Horowitz personally, like, I just think that since everyone in the community knows who he is, I think that's a good example of like, I feel like my primary is like a little mini him on his own level. Um, that's a great way to explain it, that you found your own Dr. Horowitz, essentially, who was able to help you and work with you. So walk us through now with this new Lyme Litter Medical Doctor, how she was working with you and what treatment she was recommending that you would either get directly through her or through your primary care physician closer at home. So when I started seeing her, um, I was bedridden at that point. Um, I My apartment flooded in 2019 twice, and then I moved in with my parents at the end of 2019. And then so January 2020 is when I first had my appointment with my Lyme doctor. So I like was like a zombie and barely remember anything. But in those first like six months of working with her, she immediately suspected that I had was harboring a lot of mycotoxins. So um, found and out- for listeners, been... Jenny, mycotoxins are, are toxins for mold exposure, correct? Yes. Okay. So, um, and then it added up thinking about like in the past of like, oh yeah, we lived in like moldy housing and, or my, and my dorm in college was moldy. And I relapsed as soon as I graduated high school and moved into a dorm. So like, it all made sense in hindsight once she. And you're pooping once a week and you're not detoxing, you're harboring yeah. all these toxins, you're being exposed to mold and you're getting more and more toxic. And now you're, you're, you're debilitated and bed bound at this point. Right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's now looking back, you can see it so clearly that your body oh, yeah. is just being destroyed. Right. Yeah. So she immediately. Uh, did a urine test for mold with, I think I did vibrant or great plains. And then um, at some point she started to suspect heavy metals because of my neurological symptoms of like, I would literally black out every day um, as if I was like wasted from alcohol, but I was completely sober. And it's just like from like 7 PM to the next morning, I'd wake up and I'm like, what happened yesterday? Like, it was just so, it was like, Alzheimer level of just like complete memory loss. So she was like, sounds like you might have heavy metals in your brain in a, you know, in addition to everything. And then it turns out I had really high levels of lead. And then once I did IV chelation, which she was able to tell my primary, you know, to do, and he does that in his clinic. So I improved dramatically after just 12 rounds of that. And then she also, Jenny, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but you said obviously the heavy metals and you did IV chelation for these metals, correct? Yes. So can you just expand upon that? So 
how do you, how do people get heavy metals in their brain, right? So how do you think you got heavy metals into your system? And what is IV chelation? How does that work to pull these metals out of your tissues and your brains and things like that? So you can do oral or IV. And I did oral chelation first. Um, there's some herbal ones. Um, like I think some people will do like cholera. No, uh, I was going to say cholera, like the infectious disease. I'm saying it wrong. The little green. What a chlorella. Yes, there we go. Yes, chlorella is great for heavy metals. I, I've <laughs> used that numerous okay. times. Um, but, but you went the IV route for uh, pharmaceuticals rather than the chlorella, right? Yeah, so I did DMSA and I didn't make any progress with like the oral chelation. So then I did IV EDTA um, to make progress with that. And I had numerous heavy metals, but it was mainly lead. And we traced it back to, because my dad finally, he ended up getting tested too. And his lead levels were twice as high as mine. So when our house was built, um, in like 2005, they, it's not lead piping, but they sealed the piping with lead. So they think that, cause we called the city and like looked up on like what our water supply levels. And then I did testing in our, cause we have reverse osmosis at my parents' house. So I was like, our water should be super clean. But then I did like the home test strip and it came back positive for lead. Um, and so then that's when we were able to conclude that it was leaching into our water in our own house. Jenny, was your dad sick because he had double the levels of this lead toxicity? Was he sick or, and if he was, was he as, as sick as you at this point? So not as sick as me. And my theory is that, so my dad is very, his, my dad is most symptomatic. He's been tested for tick-borne diseases and he was negative, but he's symptomatic severely of mold toxicity. And I think that maybe like harboring all that extra adipose tissue in his gut somehow helped prevent the heavy metals from like moving systemically through his body so you think you think it prevented the the toxins from the metal from going through his gut into his bloodstream and getting disseminated and that's possibly why i mean is that, is that what you're saying that's what i mean I just, so it's my theory <laughs> it makes sense but i also wonder yeah. right you everybody has a general toxic bucket for lack of a better way of describing it in their body right so you, you had you had this crazy toxic bucket you had 13 strains of borrelia you had two species of babesia you had erlichia you had tick-borne relapse and fever you had mycotoxins from mold exposure you had this lead toxicity and probably a lot of other things you'll never know you had because there's so many things that we just can't test for so do you think it's, just, it's possible that your dad just had less things in his toxic bucket than you and that's why you got sticker oh yeah i definitely think the it's part of it was our toxic burden. And then just the fact that I was born immunocompromised essentially. So I, my dad, my dad doesn't, my dad is chronically ill, but he wouldn't consider himself disabled. So I think that, you know, cause that can separate from like the severe, of course, all chronic illness is valid. It's, it's horrible suffering, but you know, how much does it impair your activities of daily living? My dad's never had to take a work from break. Like I was bedridden. I had to take a two-year medical leave from nursing. Like it's, I wasn't able to like bite the bullet and push through like he could. And I think it has to do with the fact that like my immune system never developed properly and, um, that I lived in mold long, like before my immune system developed the same, like, whereas, you know, he grew up in probably safer housing, um, as a little kid than I did. So I think it's just like compounded over time is that we really, 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 really underestimate the impact the immune system has on our systemic health and how much it interacts with so many other vital organs in the body, which is just like a huge rant. I could go on with modern medicine, no. how we disconnected every organ from each other and then separated dentistry from the body when it's like oral microbiome has so much health impact on your health. And yeah. 
it's all connected, Jenny, right? And, yeah. and I, I, I want to go a little bit deeper because like, I, and again, we, I feel like we know you personally already. So I'm going to just put leading on your harder on this. I know how smart you are. A lot of this IV chelation and even okay. oral, you know, the oral stuff for heavy metals, we've heard people tell us they've got chelated and it was too aggressive and they like were, they were yeah. extremely, it, it affected their mental health. They were depressed, anxious, suicidal. They were like a different person, like their personality changed because of the chelation. So what are your thoughts on that? Did you have that type of response to the chelation? And even if not, what are your thoughts why certain people react that way? Is it brain inflammation? Is it just too much toxicity causing, just causing this overwhelming of your system, causing these neuropsychiatric symptoms? Like where do you fall in that regard? I think a lot of it is the um, die-off reaction of an overload of toxins circulating in the bloodstream and in your lymphatic system. And, you know, some people's blood-brain barrier is more permeable than others. And like something we're noticing with like this huge study that just came out, like a preprint for long haul with COVID is that uh, it's invading the brain through like um, neurotubes that it's made. So when you think like, well, what other, like there's, it's possible that this has maybe been happening to like other people who've been exposed to viral infections in the past, even if they've been deemed, you know, more mild than COVID. And I want to use like quotation marks there because, you know, depending on your body, nothing is mild compared to others anyway. So that's just like, another thing I was thinking is just like the gut permeability can happen when you're chronically ill. Well, what about like the brain permeability in chronically ill people? So like, it's just like another thing that we just don't know all the answers because there's not enough research into this. Like we just don't know. So um, that's really, so I'm sorry, but that's a really interesting topic you just brought up because we have our gut, which is a, you know, there's various barriers our body has to protect us, right? And our gut is one barrier where our gut protects the a ton of these foreign microbes from getting to our bloodstream. But if we have leaky gut or that barrier gets broken down from antibiotic overuse or a poor diet or whatever it may be, we can have more of these toxins and more of these microbes leaking into our bloodstream, making us sick, right? But the other barrier you pointed out is our blood brain barrier. And there are various ways in which our blood brain barrier can be broken down. And if it's broken down, then possibly we're having more of these neuropsychiatric symptoms as a result of treatment because those toxins and the die-off is getting, I guess, essentially flushed or circulated through our brain is what you're saying. Is that, is that what I'm hearing from you, Jenny? Yeah, I feel like that's one possible explanation. Um, and then it could also just be, and this is why I, whenever I like make TikToks and stuff, I always try to harp that it's so important that you don't try to do any of this stuff on your own without a practitioner's guidance. Because if your detox and methylation pathways aren't open, like your lymphatic systems aren't running well, if you don't know what your basic CBC and CMP labs look like, is your kidney and liver functioning well? Like you, you need to know this stuff before you, because for some people like, yeah, you could have suicidal ideation. You could have a seizure. Like it's, and I don't say that to scare people, but like, that's just the reality. Like these are complex chronic illnesses that unfortunately aren't well understood by the average physician or Western medicine as a whole. So yeah, like it doesn't surprise me to hear that some people have gone through like hell with side effects. Like when I took disulfiram, I stopped producing dopamine. Like it was the worst six months of my treatment. By well, let's get, we're going to get there, Jenny. I don't want to jump ahead. I have so many questions for you still. So, okay. so for you though, for the chelation, it was well received and you felt a little yeah. bit better and you didn't have any extreme flares or anything, correct? No, I did totally fine with it. Okay. So you did the chelation. 
uh, and now let's let's continue on. So with, with this doctor, in addition to chelation with the Lyme litter doctor that you're seeing, what else was she doing with you besides chelation? Um, and prior, obviously, you did the, the antibiotic cocktail and the herbs. What else was going on in your treatment here? Um, she encouraged me to do to find a hydrocolon therapist to try to help me get my bowels moving because it was so bad. Um, and so I did that once a week for six months to try to get the process going because I just had been chronically constipated like my whole life. Um, and then we, what else? She, was that helpful? Like walk us through, like, obviously like we, you know, you don't have to go into detail about the process, but once you started getting your bowels moving, were you feeling any better? Was it helping flush things out or were you really not seeing any results from that? It, well, I would get relief for like a day or two and then just like get, go back to like my horrible baseline. But I have, I'd say aside from like my joints being heavily attacked, like I'm obviously not on Megan's level, like bionic woman, but um, after my joints, I would say that my gastrointestinal system is like the most impacted after that. And then neurological would be next, but so I've had gastroparesis. So it's just like, I'm constantly battling like SIBO and opportunistic gut infections. And it's just like a never ending battle. So, you know, it can take years to heal a leaky gut. So, so is that what gastroparesis is? Can you just give us a, a quick explanation of what that means? So I gastroparesis is when you have damage to your vagus nerve. Uh, well, I mean, that's, it's autonomic dysfunction. Um, so like a lot of people in the Lyme community will have dysautonomia, like the main manifestation subtype being POTS. So this is another form of autonomic dysfunction, like your organs that you can't control. So you can't control your digestion either. And like peristalsis moving it through your bowels. So for me, um, they did a gastric emptying study in undergrad. And so I got diagnosed with gastroparesis before I got, um, my answers with Lyme and stuff. Um, so food stays in my stomach for too long. So it could, I could throw up like 12 hours after eating and like there would be undigested food and food shouldn't stay in your stomach for longer than three hours. So then imagine it going through like my intestines just as slowly. So then it ferments and like produces more bacteria and, you know, think about normal, healthy people who like, if they get exposed to food poisoning or something like they can maybe have some acute diarrhea and flush it out. Well, people like me, it's just going to sit and then like replicate more. So it's just, you develop gut dysbiosis. Like it's so common. Um, like I wouldn't say gastroparesis itself is super common with Lyme, but gut dysbiosis is. And I think that there probably are some people with gastroparesis who just don't know that that's what it is. Because even when you go to see a gastroenterologist, that's not something that they are willing to look into right away. Like they are also in denial of the prevalence of gastroparesis. Um, Cause I think I had to see my GI for like two years before he finally uh, diagnosed with gastroparesis. So Jenny, what else were you doing at this point? Was there anything else you were doing with this Lyme litter doctor? We did talk about the chelation. We talked about some of the clonics. Uh, we talked about, I believe that was it so far. Is there anything else with this new Lyme litter doctor you were doing? So I, she emphasized detox work a lot. So I t did like, you know, bitter herbs, liver support, um, stuff like that. And I started to get as diligent as I could with my infrared sauna. I could only tolerate like five minutes every four days for like the first few months. And then slowly over time, now I've been using it consistently for like two, all the entire pandemic. Cause you know, I was bedridden like when COVID hit. Um, now I can sit in there for like, an hour every day if I wanted to. 
um, I can tolerate it that long. And I, I contribute like my infrared sauna, just like sweating every single day to a huge part of my healing because so much of why I we're all, you know, individual bodies in this complex, um, conditions. But for me, I think like a lot of it was my toxic load of just environmental toxins, because I also ended up this past year, I had urine testing for environmental toxins with my Lyme doctor. And like, I had BPA, um, glyphosate, uh, perchlorate, just like through the roof, like just full of like endocrine disrupting chemical port, like chemicals. And it's just, so then, and then I did like a recheck after I kept diligently using my sauna and like, it was going down as well as my mold. Like I've rechecked my levels of mold, like three times since my original labs in the beginning of January, 2020. Um, and I've, I'm down to two strains of mold. And I think I had six when I started and they were all in the red. And now the last two are just like at the cusp of yellow. So, and then I was on cholecystamine for like five or six months to first try to hit the mold as hard as I could, the prescription um, antifungal. And then, you know, taking a binder diligently is really important. Like, I really wish that doctors would emphasize that. Um, so really with your Lyme litter doctor, it, you focused on making up for the deficit that your primary care physician had, which again, no fault of, of his own, but yeah. with your new Lyme litter doctor, she was focusing on your detox, your lymphatic system, yeah. getting these toxins out and really and really helping your body do what it was designed to do and get these toxins out of you so you're not so toxic and not so inflamed and you can have some symptom relief basically, right? Yes, and I think part of what led her to dive in, like obviously like a lot of Lyme doctors, it's common for them to immediately think mold if you are a chronic tick-borne patient because that's a huge reason why people don't get better. But diving into more of the environmental and like heavy metal industrial toxins. Um, I think that's because I had done ozone like in different routes on and off for years already. And I never even herxed from ozone or had a reaction. And so from her, and then I consulted with a Lyme literate doctor in Mexico and together talking to them, we all concluded that it's more that maybe because I wasn't responding to ozone, it was more like some environmental toxins at that point than some of the infections anymore, if that makes sense. It does. No, absolutely. It makes sense. Your process elimination, you're making deductions based on what's, what's happening in your body and based on your, your body's response to treatment for sure. So it sounds like you were doing pretty well with this Lyme litter doctor. How long were you with her for? And if you were doing better, why did you decide to make a pivot? Because I know at some point you went to, sounds like Santa Viva, Mexico. So is that after this Lyme litter doctor? So I still see my Lyme doctor, um, but I actually had an appointment with her like a few weeks ago and she was like, okay, well, we can book you for a year out, but if you don't need me, then I guess I won't hear from you for a year, which was weird because I was seeing her like every three to six months since I started seeing her. Um, and she even had to have me hospitalized once where like she had to call the hospital because they wouldn't admit me. Like she, she's fierce, love her. Um, but so I was with her from January to July. I was on disulfiram. That was the first, aside from treating mold, I was also hitting Lyme and I was on different antiparasitics, um, but I did not tolerate them. Like um, Mepron is what landed me in the hospital. And that's when they wouldn't admit me. And she was like, no, like you're giving my patient a bed. <laughs> um, so you did this with your Lyme litter medical doctor, disulfiram and Mepron and the antiparasitics and the Babesia treatment. That's still with your, your Lyme litter doctor, correct? 
Yeah. And I don't want to scare people like out of trying Mephron. It's just like me individually, I would put it on like my list of like, I'm not allergic, but I would prefer not to like have adverse effects from it. Um, like they resolve, but it's just like acutely, I like could not tolerate the medication. Um, disulfiram really damaged my mental health. Like I said, I stopped producing dopamine. Um, but at the time I was also still, so I moved out of my moldy apartment into my parents' house and they had already remediated because we found mold in like 2018, which is why we weren't surprised when my Lyme doctor was like, oh yeah, mold's why you're still so sick. Uh, but we thought we were mold free. Like my parents did ERMI professional remediation, everything. And then it grew back in one air vent in the whole freaking house. And it was the air vent above the bed where I was bedridden. So that's why we got to be kidding me. Yeah, I know what, like, what are the odds? <laughs> it's, it's hell. Um, so I think that's part of why I didn't do well with disulfiram, but then from speaking to a lot of other people in the community and my Lyme doctor, it's just the con- general conclusion is like, it's like taking Dapsone where it's just like, it's going to be hell when you're on it. And some people, it could be like the answer for them. And then for some people, it, there's no progress. And then, you know, and then some people maybe worse, but again, that's like almost every single intervention for Lyme. Um, but, I mean, Jenny, that's been our experience as well. I mean, look at Brooke Stoddard, right? From Generation Lyme. We interviewed him almost two years ago and, you know, disulfiram was what helped him get his health back and his life back. Yeah. And other people we've talked to who have done disulfiram, it's damaged them and made them worse because they've, and in many cases, they went on it too quickly. We know with disulfiram, you're supposed to start really, really slow, like with baby, baby doses and build up. We've had people tell us that it's, it's impacted their mental health and physical health, and they've been worse as a result of it. So I think it's one of those tools you have to approach with caution oh, and it yeah. could be good for you, but maybe not could be good for you. Just like you said, everything else that's out there, right? So for you though, the Mepiron was too strong, so you couldn't handle that landing in the hospital. The disulfiram was causing you severe psychological problems. How long were you on the disulfiram for before you decided to go off it because of the impact it was having on your mental health? Uh, so one thing about me um, is that I am incredibly stubborn. And I, if someone tells me to push through a treatment, I will try to do it. So my family kind of and I don't want to guilt them, but like my family begged me not to stop the treatment because they really, really thought this was going to be like the turning point for me. Um, so I did the full six months of like a slow taper up to the full dose and then the slow, like two month long taper back off of it. So I was at the highest dose for like four months. Um, I don't remember what it was. Cause it was like two years ago now. Um, and I just bit the bullet. I was miserable. I cried like every single day. It was hell. Um, but I just, the only thing I could hold on to was the hope that it would help. Um, and my Lyme doctor was honest with me when I started it. She's like, you're, there's no way that you'll be able to work. Like you have to be on a medical leave. Like it's going to make you very sick. So she, like, she warned me I was going to get worse on it. I just didn't know that like it was going to get that bad. Uh, but then after doing that, I had been begging my parents that whole year to let me go to Santa Viv. And then um, my grandma had died two years prior. So she left my mom money. And my mom was like, finally gave in after talking to my Lyme doctor. Because my Lyme doctor, since she's on the ILAD board, she's familiar with these Lyme doctors in Mexico. And my mom was like, finally, like, okay, fine. If you're a Lyme doctor who I now trust fully because she's taking good care of you, if she trusts these physicians in Mexico, then I'm willing to look into it further. Um, so my parents, and at this point, like, I'll be honest, when I was on the disulfiram, like I was crying every day to the point where I was begging my parents to just let me stop treatment so I could die. And like, I've never been suicidal. I've never been suicidal. I've never self-harmed or wanted to, but 
I think almost everyone who's chronically ill can relate to where it's just, you're suffering so much in your own body that it's like, how can I, I'm being tortured. Like, I feel like a POW, like, how can I keep doing this? Uh, Cause I was sleeping like eight hours in an entire week. So I couldn't even escape reality, like in my sleep, you know? Um, so finally, I think after like that torture and my parents, I was living with them. So they witnessed it 24 seven that they were finally like, okay, our kid doesn't even want to be alive. Like we're going to send her to Mexico. Um, so my mom went with me and I went to San Aviv, like through my Lyme doctor's, um, encouragement. And, uh, I was there for two weeks, did the hyperthermia program. This was Jenny, December I'm sorry to interrupt again. I just, I just, before we get too far with San Aviv, I just so many okay. questions. I know I keep pulling you back. No, it's okay. I will rant. So I have, I have, I have, I have a mixed interpretation of your views on disulfiram. Obviously it had an, a horrible effect on your mental health and your, your dopamine. Right. But yeah. did it help you physically? Because there's two sides of this disease, the physical and the mental. Yeah. Right. But did it help you physically? Did it help your, your, your knees? Did it help your stomach? Did it help, you know, your, your physical pain and things like that, or all, all in all, you think it was something that you don't, uh, you wish you would have been able to forego and not have gone through that. I did not respond to it. So I don't blame anyone. I don't blame my family for pushing me through it. I don't guilt myself over it because, you know, you don't know until you know. Um, and I don't blame my Lyme doctor. She's literally she's doing whatever she can to help me. I owe a lot to her. Uh, but I do, in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, I wish I hadn't gone through that. That was super traumatizing. Um, but like I couldn't, and this is when the pandemic hit and I couldn't even use hand sanitizer because I was on disulfiram. So it was just like an added anxiety of like, <laughs> you like, how do I go out in the world? Uh, I mean, before we knew COVID was just airborne, but I digress. Uh, so I personally, yeah, I wish that looking back, I had approached treatment differently from the get-go, even with my primary, but something I learned from getting sick at such a young age is like, you can't live like that. You can't live in regrets and what ifs you just have to be, just learn from your experiences and help educate and encourage others. Um, and like you said, like, I know some other Lyme people who couldn't function without disulfiram. Like even now, like when they flare, they need it to get back to baseline. So I definitely don't want to discourage people, but me personally, yeah, no, it was not, uh, I made no progress on it. I didn't make progress until I went to the, got home from Santa Aviv. Okay. So Jenny, now we're, we're, it's July of 2020, right? So you're about almost two years into your diagnosis, it sounds like, because you were about a year yeah. on the Buner protocol, right? Then you were about now seven, eight months with your Lyme literate medical doctor. So almost two years in, right before Sanaviv, mm -hmm. were you feeling any better? Or was all this stuff just making you herx? And then you'd go back to your baseline and really weren't, weren't improving much. Like, you know, give us a general assessment of where you were health-wise right before Sanaviv. Herx and baseline and... A roller coaster, Herx and baseline. And then before Santa Aviv, I was rock bottom, like not even wanting, like to the point where I didn't even really have hope anymore. Like, I think the only reason I was like trying to survive is because I had a nephew at that point and I just like wanted to be here for him. And again, like no issues of like suicide or anything, but it's all, you know, it's just like, I didn't want to fight anymore. I just wanted to like lie there and hope I wouldn't wake up. Um, so then I just stopped the medication and had this try to hold on to hope that I would start improving as I like flushed out the effects of the disulfiram. Um, but then by the time the fall came is when my parents were like, okay, fine, you can go to Mexico. So then I got hope again. I was like, 
all I could think about was Mexico. I was like, I can't wait to go. Like, I'm finally going to start getting better. Like I was terrified, but I was also super hopeful again. Um, so I didn't really, I was just treating Babesia from between disulfiram and Mexico. I was only treating Babesia. I wasn't treating Lyme. I was just trying to recover from disulfiram. What were you using to treat the Babesia? What was that protocol you were um, using? I had switched to cryptolepsis at that point. Um, and I did that for a long time and I was able to tolerate that so much better. Um, and then I ended up doing something later that actually really helped Babesia more, but that's what I managed with was cryptolepsis tincture in the time. You know, it, makes me, it makes me wonder Jenny, because obviously some of these things didn't help you feel better, but we've had people in the past tell us that, Hey, I did, I, I wasn't able to tolerate this medication. Then I did this other medication, which didn't make me feel better. But then I was able to tolerate the same medication I couldn't tolerate before because of that medication I did after, right? So it makes me mm -hmm. wonder if the disulfiram or all these things you were doing, the Buner protocol, the, the antibiotic cocktail, you know, the, the heavy metal chelation, all of these mold treatments you were doing, do you think that increased your tolerance for some of these medications that were allowing you to then get deeper and deeper into the body, which ultimately led you up to Sanaviv where you had your, your breakthrough and you, and you started to feel better finally at that point? I'd like to think so. My Lyme doctor and my mom think so. And they've said like, I mean, honestly, how would we know definitively that it didn't help at least somewhat. And then when I consulted with, uh, Dr. Omar Gonzalez, is that his last name or is it go Dr. Omar at Lyme, Mexico? I don't know if yep. you're familiar with him. Yeah. Okay. Lyme disease, Mexico. Yeah. What's his last name again? I don't know, but I do, I do know Dr. Omar from Wamsey's Mexico, but yeah, we, we, uh, we love following them on social media. Yes. So I consulted with him, um, cause he accepted my case, but it's just like, I haven't gone, like I can't afford it, but he agreed with off it. And he was like, I mean, he was like disulfiram probably helped in the end, but we just didn't notice any acute effects. He's like, I, he's, he's like, I'm glad that you tried it. Um, when I went through like all the treatments I've done with him, it's like, He's like, yeah, you've hit heavier and harder than the average patient ever has or ever will. Because again, I have the financial privilege that most people with Lyme don't. Um, so yeah, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, talk to us about, uh, talk to us about Sanaviv because we've heard a lot of great things about Sanaviv. We've had a lot of past guests, uh, Ava Passarelli and, and, you know, went there. We've had a lot of, I met a lot of her people go there. there. Get out of here. You met yeah, Ava there? Super, uh, super wild. So when I was there, um, I think it, maybe it was y'all's page. It was some line page and it was a picture of her. And I guess that she had been interviewed for something. And I was like, that woman looks super familiar. And I showed my mom and I was like, and it was about Lyme. So I was like, I think that that woman is here with her kid. Well, like I'm here for treatment too. Like what the heck? And so of course, like me being super outgoing, I went and like told her that, and it turned out to be her. Um, so it's so awesome that I got to meet Ava and her mom. Um, you met Liza as well. Liza, Liza. Yes, I met Liza and Eva. Oh, what an experience that must have been. Yeah, I mean, they had a really good experience there. So walk us through what yeah, it was like Ava being there really because, well. because, you know, Liza and Ava described it as it being not just a great place physically, but emotionally. They were so supportive. They provided therapy. It, it Even though you were out of the country and it, it can be so scary, they felt so comforted and welcomed and supported there in addition to getting the treatment that they needed to feel better. So was that your experience as well? Oh yeah. So I didn't feel, I felt confident in the grade, like the standard of medical care I was going to receive because I think a lot of like, again, being able to go to Mexico for treatment is just a privilege in itself. But I think a lot of Americans practice some uh, xenophobia or racism, not sure which one would be the correct label in this circumstance of like, Oh, healthcare in Mexico, like 
that's so dangerous. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not going for like, like laparoscopic surgery or like breast implants. Like I'm, you know, like yeah. they know a lot about root cause medicine in Mexico. Um, so I felt very confident that I was in good hands. Um, physicians in Mexico are a lot less um, pretentious than American doctors. So I think that they're less likely to make these egotistical mistakes that American doctors commonly make all the time. Um, so I wasn't scared in that aspect. I, but the hardest part for me was being away from my pets. Like they, like my husky's my emotional support animal. So like, it was really hard to be like herxing and not having a dog there with me. Um, so that was hard, but I agree. Like I felt safe and that the staff was very supportive. Um, and it, it was very helpful that you're allowed to take like a caregiver or whatever they want to call it there. They don't like to use that word, but that's what I would call my mom when we were there. Um, but it's just the thing I will say about Santa View that's important for people to know is if you don't have the financial means to go there, then like, obviously there are way, way more cheaper options that are available. And so I don't want people to think like, that's the only way they're ever going to get better is if they have to save up to go there, because there are things that you can crowdsource for in your own community, like SOT or ozone, like things like that to where they are kind of expensive still, but it's like GoFundMe's could get you there easier than this. Because the thing about going to Santa Aviv is if you're there for hyperthermia, you're there to hit Borrelia. You're someone who is chronic and severely immunosuppressed to where your body cannot fight and produce antibodies on your own to fight these infections. Um, cause a lot of people like in the Facebook group, I noticed after I came back is a lot of us who didn't get better after Santa Aviv ended up getting diagnosed with like basal ganglion encephalitis or some sort of primary immunodeficiency, like hypo, uh, glob- how do you say it? Hypo, uh, globulinemia. And then, um, like specific antibody deficiency, I, you know, IgG deficiencies. So for me, I knew it was good for me to go because I'm congenital. So like my body never even learned how to fight off Borrelia infections from the get go. Um, and I think that for me, like you can get T cell exhaustion from like chronic infections, the way that like HIV patients do. And that we're also seeing again with the preprint study for long haul COVID. So doing hyperthermia can help boost those T cells. So I think for someone like me, yes, it's like, if you can afford it, go, but know that if you're not going, if you're not hitting your co-infections, if you're not hitting mold and other things like that, and like changing up your diet really well, you're not going to see super good benefits from it. And it's okay, just are like, you saying that Santa Viva isn't going to address mold or co-infections? I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Okay. So, so they will, but not on a like hyper-focused level. Like you're, when you're there, you're there for the two rounds of hyperthermia, like the whole body heated therapy. Um, but when you're under, they flush you with IV antiparasitics and IV antibiotics. You do get IV chelation while you're there. You're on binders. You get high dose vitamin C IV. You get... Um, like Myers cocktails, like they, you're eating soup, the cleanest food you could ever imagine, like amazing food, like Aaron, you're getting holistic mind body therapy, hyperbaric ozone, like you're getting chiropractic, you're getting everything, but the focus is on the hyperthermia to hit the Lyme for treatment resistant patients. So they even tell you there, like when you go home, you still have to hit everything else. Like expect to feel worse before you feel better and expect that this is not the end of your healing journey. And so that's why I just want to reiterate to people that 
I think it takes a specific subtype of the Lyme population that would benefit most from that treatment. Because again, it's like 20 to 25,000, like that's 99% of patients can't even think of ever affording that. So I want the 1% who even can to still know that it's not meant for everyone unless it's like, yeah, if you can throw that money out there, then like go for it. But, most but Jenny, there's no magic bullet with anything. So Sanity obviously is not a magic bullet, but I'm curious. So obviously you, you have to continue more co-infection treatment when you get home, but mm-hmm. why is that? Hyperthermia, I believe, is is effective at killing the Lyme bacteria at that high temperature, Yes. but the co-infections are not killed at the temperature, only only the Lyme bacteria. Is that correct or am I, or am I mistaken with that? Yes. Um, it's specifically designed to hit Borrelia. And then the other thing, and of course it's supposed to help inactivate biofilms at such a high temperature. And that's why they also flush you with the, um, I think they do a biofilm buster. I don't know what they use. And then you get like alpha lipoic acid and IV glutathione and stuff like that afterward. Um, but the other thing is, is that being at those high systemic temperatures can reactivate dormant viral infections. So they put you on prophylactic, like, um, acyclovir and they send you home with it too. But thankfully nothing reactivated for me. I haven't dealt, I have cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr, but neither of those were reactivated. I haven't had issues with those in years. Um, but for some patients, that's part of like the progress hindrance when they get home is because they do have to deal with the consequence of like reactivated Epstein-Barr if they, from the hyperthermia, if it wasn't controlled well. Um, but just to sum it up though, they are hitting co-infections, but it's really targeted for Borrelia, but a lot of the yeah. other infusions and IVs and treatments are doing will address it, but they're saying, hey, hey, look, we're really good at getting, getting deep yeah. into the Lyme and killing this Lyme bacteria, but the co-infections we're going to help you with, but don't walk away expecting to be in exactly. as good of a place with those co-infections as you are Lyme disease, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, from what we hear, this is like, you when you get out of hyperthermia, you're like disoriented. We've seen videos, actually, some of our past guests coming out of hyperthermia at San Aviv. So what was it like being there, getting the hyperthermia, coming out, the physical and the emotional side of being in another country and getting this aggressive treatment? Um, well, so thankfully I had my mom there. She's my cheerleader, my rock. Um, so I, you know, have a lot of comfort from the fact that I was there with her. Uh, and then I think it also helps that I am a nurse. So it's just like, I am acutely aware of everything that's going on around me in a medical setting. Like I know if they're following proper protocols and if it's a safe space and all that. And like all of it was like, I felt safe in like, it was essentially like an OR room with a nurse and an anesthesiologist. Um, I was nervous, but I was like, I literally told them like, I'm ready for my propofol nap, like see you on the other side. Cause they sedate you. So you don't have to feel the intense, um, heat. And then you just like wake up in your recovery room and they keep you there for the rest of the day. And you're not allowed to go outside or take a shower. Cause they don't want to, um, exacerbate like a temperature change in your core temp because of, you know, you're trying to come back down. Um, and then I just like stuffed my face with food and water afterward because the most commonly reported side effect the next day is like a severe headache, but I didn't have that because I am a master uh, at chugging water. Uh, it definitely hurt. I did hurts, but it was just like the typical symptoms that were my worst already exacerbated. And then I had a few like acute fevers afterward, but nothing that needed any medical care. Most people tolerate it very well. There was one person who had to be held like overnight in nursing care but she was in her sixties and had been diagnosed, misdiagnosed with MS for 40 years. So she was obviously like 
even more complex neurologically than I was. And she had to stay for three rounds of hyperthermia. So like she was just like some complex cases will need further nursing care, but most of us get sent back to our rooms at the end of the day. So in total, Jenny, how long were you there for? I believe you said it already. I just, I want to make sure it was two, two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks. Okay. So at the end of the two week period, were you feeling any better? And where were you at emotionally? Because you went there thinking, I'm finally going to feel better. I'm going to Mexico. And now where are you at when you're leaving Mexico? Um, I hurt for about a month, mainly GI wise, like vomiting and nausea. Um, and I would say like my insomnia and my joint pain were worse. Um, I'd say like my mental health was relatively okay because I still had the peace of mind of knowing like, okay, I'm going to give it like three months and, you know, I don't expect to feel better right now. And thankfully, um, after about three or four months, I was about 30 to 40% better. Uh, like I could drive again. I could, um, like, you know, again, it was during COVID or like, it is still COVID obviously, but like, I was able to like see people with taking precautions and like, whereas I had just been like isolated in a room for a year, the first year of COVID, um, like I could restart reading again. Like I was able to like go on some dates and it's just like things that I, I could listen to music, like things I had been so isolated from, like people don't understand unless they're one of us, like what it's like to be like, Oh my God, I can listen to the birds chirp again. I can tolerate TV again. So it's like all these, it was just, I made, it was tiny pieces of progress, but collectively it was like very overjoyous and hopeful giving me restorative hope of like, okay, like these are little baby steps, but it's progress. But I I think that's more than baby steps there, Jenny, because you were (laughs) gone for two weeks prior to leaving, you were bed bound and horribly, horribly, you know, giving up on life basically, right. You were giving up on life at that point within a few months of being back. So three months later, you're driving, you're going on dates, you're listening (laughs) to music and you're getting your life back. So, I mean, that sounds so simple to healthy, quote unquote, people, right? But I yeah. mean, we know I couldn't drive for two years, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, so that in itself is just a transformation, I feel like. So I, I don't want to underscore how how well you did from the treatment of Sanaviv, right? So yeah. continue to give us some of those, those examples of how you improved and then how you went into the next couple of months as time continued on after that. So let's see, that was like through... January, February, March, April. I think around April, 2021. Yeah. Is when I finally was like, okay, I'm feeling healthy enough that I'm still like super sick and like too disabled to do much. But I started to have, I started to like, think about a future again. Like I was like, okay, someday I'm going to be healthy enough to be a nurse again. Like Someday I'll, I started thinking about things like, I always, I really want to be a foster mom. And I was like, okay, someday, like I can like, that can be a dream again. Like I was able to just stop living stuck in the moment of that debilitating anxiety of like, I have no future. I have no life. Like I'm always going to be this sick. And I don't say that in just like, a, oh, it's a mind over matter because it is certainly not. But a lot of that mental anguish was able to start subsiding because I was making physical progress. If that makes sense. Um, it, it does. You got, you had progress, you got hope back and you kept making improvements and you started to plan a life and you started to gain hope uh, in life again. And you, and, and it was the opposite of where you were before Santa Viv, right? I mean, that's beautiful. So 
I mean, obviously it's not perfect still because, you know, it never is with chronic Lyme disease and co-infections. Yeah. And at what point though, Jenny, did you realize that you were a congenital case of Lyme disease, meaning that your mother had it and passed it on to you at birth? When did you realize that? Not until I started seeing my Lyme doctor and we went through like an ex- my extensive medical history and family history. Um, Cause my mom had been misdiagnosed with arthritis and struggled with some mental health issues. And then my grandpa, her dad, um, and again, this side of the family, like grew up in the hill country, um, all the time. And he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So originally they thought it was because he underwent triple bypass and that lost too much oxygen during surgery. But in hindsight, we think that it, we, I'm third generation Lyme, um, because I have other cousins on that same side of the family getting tick-borne diseases rolled out right now. Well, probably getting diagnosed formally rather than rolled out. Uh, I think that they were misdiagnosed growing up as well because two of them got sick um, when they were like prepubescent and puberty age as well. So I think that there's just like a handful of Lyme patients. And like my brother has some psychiatric symptoms of Lyme as well. So I, like I said, my dad's negative, but since my mom's not like, yeah. And I just am waiting for her to do a full panel. Cause I sometimes wonder if we both got babesiosis acutely, or if I got that congenitally too, because she's been symptomatic of that for like 15 years. So I'm like, it's not menopause when it's been 15 years of like drenched sweats. <laughs> well, Jenny, it's interesting. You're talking about the fact that your grandfather had Alzheimer's, right? I think you said with that we had, yeah. right? So he had Alzheimer's, and right before this podcast, we, Rich and I received an email from Dr. Alan McDonald, who mm-hmm. over thirty years ago made the connection between Alzheimer's and Lyme disease. And most Alzheimer's patients had Lyme disease, right, in their brain. They were finding it in biofilms. And he just emailed us. I just want to share with you and everybody listening. And he just emailed us before this podcast, and he's made a, a new groundbreaking discovery that he's going to be sharing with the this our, our audience and the world in the near future. So it's encouraging to hear that something that your grandfather was, was afflicted with so many years ago. There are still studies happening today, and studies that were happening in the past to prove the connection between tick-borne illness and those conditions. And the more we learn, the more we can help people with these types of tick-borne illnesses, right? So there is hope, and that, and that's cool. Where yeah. it ties into you're starting to get hope back in life and plan your future. So let's hear more about you know as the as this is about a year ago, right? So what happened from that point, you know, summertime last year through the present date? It seems like you just cut, you kind of got better and better and better. And mm-hmm. you're just now doing more and more and more. Were you able to go back to work? Were you able to, you know, because again, you were bed bound, right? You were literally giving up on yeah. life. And then it sounds like you were able to work a little bit throughout the last year, possibly as well. Yeah. So I, let's see, April 2021 is, I think the next month, April or May, I did my first round of uh, supportive illegal nucleotide technique through my Lyme doctor. Um, when I sent out my blood to the lab in Germany, I mean, in Greece, uh, we determined that I am still just actively fighting Borrelia burgdorferi. So all my other strains of Borrelia are either cured or dormant, you know, hard to know which it is. And then Babesia duncani is dormant, but I still have active, active Babesia microti. So those, and then I have HHV seven, those are my three active infections. Um, but I'm not really symptomatic of the HHV seven. Um, so I did SOT for Borrelia and then Three months later, I did SOT for Babesia. And then within like a month after that, my dysautonomia like improved dramatically. So 
we're able to determine that the main cause, of course it can be multifactorial, but we think that the main cause, or no rather, the main cause of my dysautonomia was untreated Babesia because I don't have anxiety anymore. I like, I still have orthostatic hypotension, but like, I don't get like the drenched sweats. I don't get, um, the chronic fatigue, like my fatigue. I just have like normal, I don't want to say normal fatigue because it's still chronic illness fatigue, but it's like, it's not debilitating at all, like at all anymore. Like I could work a full day and then I'm like, yeah, my brain doesn't work because like I have encephalitis. And so I'm flaring, but physically, like I could handle a full work day. And it was really, I owe that to getting my parasitic load of Babesia down enough to where the debilitating fatigue lifted. So that was like a huge, huge game changer for me. And again, unfortunately it's like 3k per infusion. So it's not affordable to most people. A lot of people have to travel out of state to do it. I'm fortunate that my Lyme doctor's, you know, a few cities away. Um, but I always try to recommend, like, I would recommend SOT to people over hyperthermia because of the cost benefit analysis, in my opinion. Um, so that was a big game changer. And then after that point, when like the debilitating fatigue improved, I've started to think like, okay, I think I can like start working again, or, or like I'm getting to that point where I can start working. Um, and then I, after I did SOT, then I just kept working on my mold detoxing, environmental detoxing. Um, and so how are you doing that, Jenny? What were you using to continue to work on that? Were you doing herbal supplements? What, what was your plan and what was your protocol for that? Um, different herbs and then different supplements, I guess, just, you know, it's so individualized, but I would try to, I did a lot of glutathione. I had to do IV glutathione because my intestinal membrane was so damaged that I couldn't even absorb vitamins like that were PO. So I was either doing liposomal or IV for all of my supplements and PO means oral Jenny. I'm yeah, sorry. sorry. Okay. sorry. No, yeah. You're good. Sorry. Yeah. PO by mouth is like the Latin term, whatever. Um, yeah. So I had to do IV and liposomal, which again, that's like super expensive, but now I've been able to transition to where everything is by mouth or a few are liposomal still. Um, but I would do like, I added in phosphatidylcholine and super big on glutathione, um, probiotics. It's super important that people add that in. Um, I did, I still do and follow like a low mold diet and I, don't have to take anything for MCAS anymore. Like the root cause of my MCAS was living in mold. Um, like I may still get like a flare when I'm acutely exposed to something, but like it's, I don't even have to take quercetin. Like it's once I moved out of mold into my apartment, like I improved so much. Um, oh, and then like B12 I am, cause I have the MTHFR gene mutation. And that also is the other thing that helped my fatigue a lot is when I started doing those injections once a week uh, and just like bitter herbs for the liver, trying to add back in cruciferous vegetables. Um, and like I said, a low mold diet. So avoiding, like I cut out coffee, you know, I don't drink alcohol, um, avoid processed foods, do my best. To, and I finally this year went completely gluten-free because I did a stool like microbiome testing and I was like really reactive to gluten. So I don't know if it's the gluten or like the glyphosate technically, I don't know, it's like a whole nother conversation, but changing my diet, 
I didn't notice huge changes until I cut out dairy, gluten, soy, and processed sugar, like all, because I'd cut different ones out throughout the years. Like I've been dairy free since undergrad. Uh, but it wasn't until I cut all of them out that I was like, oh, wow, like this is actually helping my gut. Jenny, I'm curious. So have you ever had bread from overseas? Because Ali Moresco tells us she gets her bread, her semolina bread dough imported, I believe, from Europe. And when she eats that bread, she's fine because it doesn't have the glyphosate that we get in, in our bread here. Right. So have you tried that? Because I think it's a good way to help rule out if it's if it's truly a gluten allergy or just, you know, a, a mm -hmm. response to the toxins that we're getting through the gluten that we ha have here in the States. Right. Is that, is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a good idea, like uh, somewhat of an elimination um, determination. If it's not an allergy, obviously don't do that if you think you have a strict allergy versus an intolerance. Uh, but no, I've never done that. But that is a very common story that I've heard when Americans go to Europe, especially like Italy. Um, they can eat as much pasta and bread as they want. And just really in general, they can eat so much of the stuff that is the same product as here, but there's not all these additives and preservatives in it that uh, are, you know, they're illegal to be in the food there, but you know, it's the standard American diet. Isn't that crazy? The more, the more we learn, the more, the more wild it becomes to us that this is just standard practice here in the it States. But Jenny, so you you did, uh, in addition to all the detox, you continued to work on mold and, and just getting everything, you know, with the glutathione and all that stuff. But you did you did SOT for Babesia and Lyme, the two remaining yes. strains that were active, correct? Yes. And, and then, that got you to a point where you were able to really function. So like, give us like, where yeah. are you at at that point, right? Like, were you were you working? You know, where where's your health then? So I want to get a good understanding of that. Okay, so come like... August, I don't know, September, 2021. I, that's when I started doing parasite cleansing. Um, sorry, excuse me. Cause we got down the list of like, okay, I'm hitting, you know, when you go through a typical Lyme list of all the opportunistic infections that immunocompromised people have to fight, we got down to like, okay, parasites are what we need to hit. And like I mentioned earlier, like, again, we know that Americans are suffering from parasitic burden, whether they want to admit it or not. But like I've traveled to Mexico numerous times. I've gone to Central America. Like I have swallowed lake and ocean water hundreds of times in my life. Like eaten raw eggs when my mom told me not to. Like just ate dirt as a kid. Like had pets everywhere. Like so many exposures that we don't realize we have. Um, so I finally did parasite cleansing and it's it took a while. Like, I mean, I started passing biofilms within a month and it was just like biofilm for a while. And then I started noticing that like my um, gastroparesis flares weren't as bad after I had been doing the parasite cleansing for a few months. So then by like December, I started applying for jobs because I was like, I want to get, be on my feet again, be out of my parents' house. Like I need to get out of mold because I was suspecting that they were starting to grow some mold again in the house. And I don't know why, because uh, they've had it remediated twice, but I just had, like, I had to get out. And so I, I pushed myself a little too fast because the first like two months of working, it was like really hard. Like, I felt like I had the flu. Like, it's just so like acute line, like just so hard to get out of bed for work and like push myself. Cause I went from two years of medical leave to full time. Like I didn't even ease into it. So it was really hard at first. So I started working January of this year again, after like a two year leave. Um, 
And like I mentioned before we started the podcast, I had to quit because I kept getting exposed to COVID. Um, so I'm looking for a work from home job for nursing right now. Um, but I would say after SOT, it was the biggest two things that have helped since then are the parasite cleansing and then moving out of the mold into, I moved into a brand new apartment so that I could be assured I was in safe housing. And then aside from like the VOCs of originally like moving in here and flaring with MCAS within six weeks, I felt like a different person. Like I, I was finally for the first time, like in my whole life in parasympathetic mode, I didn't feel like I was stuck in fight or flight. Like I was finally meeting Haslow's my hierarchy of needs, like living in safe housing which is so and you, you think that was the mold Jenny so you think moving out of the mold and coming to the clean apartment you're in now was what got your nervous system in a better place yeah I think that was a huge part of it because again in hindsight when I think about the times when I would have severe crippling because I've had a lot of issues with anxiety on and off like since I got sick but in, but the debilitating times when it was like full on panic attacks or like bawling my eyes out, like in the middle of the night in the bathroom. So no one would hear me. Like just when it was like at an all time low of just like disabling, I was living in mold. So I really flare like MCAS and psychiatric wise when I'm in mold, like anxiety, depression, fatigue, weight gain, and like rashes and acne are like my big, like, Hey, I know I'm in mold like right away. And like my gastric juice is getting worse. Um, so yeah, I think moving into like a brand new apartment, cause like also my parents' house is full of pet and dust allergens. Cause we've lived there since I was in fifth grade and like, we did pull up all the carpets. So I know that helped some, but it's just, I think getting away from all of those environmental toxin and triggers was especially like lingering mold was what finally, and then I left behind like all my moldy furniture too. Like I barely brought anything to this apartment. So I do think that was a big part of it. And then since then, I've just been trying to manage with um, a lot of different herbal tinctures. I'm mainly hitting um, like dysbiosis right now. So still doing like parasite cleansing and then um, I'm on tinctures for um, like SIBO and I did do like that stool test. So it showed like the exact types of bacteria and fungi and stuff that are still in my gut. So I've just been hitting all of that since I moved out into this apartment. Jenny, I know uh, we've been talking for a really long time. I know we're pretty much close to the present day, but I want to ask you a little bit more about parasite cleansing because, okay. you know, it's I know it's an ugly topic. A lot of people are really interested in it. Some people, I think, you know, some people don't appreciate how important it is. Other people think it's probably more important than it really is. And that's just my personal opinion, right? So yeah. walk us through the symptoms that it helped you with. Obviously, you had this this really is big problem with your gut, your, your GI tract was just not moving, right? It was the food wasn't getting, it wasn't yeah. getting automatically moved through your GI tract. So when you started parasite cleansing, you were seeing these parasites come out in your stool, right? Not to be gross, but you're seeing them come out after, after the biofilm. And yeah. as you're seeing this happen, what symptom relief are you getting? And what's the connection between passing the parasites and symptom relief in your body? Um, so I would notice that like symptoms would flare with the full moon. Like I would get the anal itching, I would get the worsened insomnia and like a little bit of like GI distress and anxiety that lined up with it. Um, so I would notice that I knew I was still actively harboring because of the flares, but, and then just being immunocompromised my entire life. But then additionally, uh, when I would pass them, then I started noticing over time that I would, Cause when I flare with my gastroparesis, like I look like I'm in third trimester pregnancy, like hard swollen 
pregnant belly. Like, and it won't go away unless I just abstain from food and water for like a full 24 hours. Like it's just that severe. So I noticed it getting less severe to where like I would recover from it faster. I stopped throwing up as much. Um, I stopped having like reflux as much. I don't have any reflux anymore. Um, I was, my food intolerances improved. I was able to like reintroduce cause I, I eat so clean, but even healthy stuff was making me sick, especially like cruciferous vegetables. But now I can eat like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. And I couldn't eat those for years. Cause I would just like produce so much like, um, gas and flatulence, like in my abdomen too. Uh, and like my acne started getting better. Cause I would flare with the, like, I would get more acne when I would do my parasite cleanse and then like go back to baseline. So it's like, the, you know, like you're harboring them cause you're having that active die off. Um, and then like the thing with parasites is that they harbor so much of these other pathogens and toxins inside them that if you're not, they're contributing to your immunosuppression. So I, like you said, they're not the only piece of the puzzle. And I'm so frustrated when people are like, Lime is really Epstein Barr, and everyone just has a parasite. And it's like these are all different things, y'all. <laughs> um, so, but I do think it plays an important role in that we severely in Western medicine to this day continue to underestimate how common parasites are and how much they play a role in the average chronically ill person's life, not just Lyme and other tick-borne diseases, but just chronically ill people in general. Like so many of them are also immunocompromised and just don't know that because doctors haven't done further diagnostics to like confirm it with labs. So they don't realize that like, they're not able to pass these parasites like a healthy person or for it to just exist somewhat symbiotically in the gut, like a healthy person can. Um, so I definitely think it's an important part of a treatment protocol. And it's something I didn't add in until this past year. Um, and it's something I wish that I had hit sooner too, but it's definitely not the big answer that like cures people or something. I couldn't agree more. And it's not, it's not just parasites for me. It's, it's anything. Even just to say Lyme disease is the end all be all. It's not. Lyme disease yeah, exactly. is one, one thing, right? It's one thing you have to address. So when people say, if I treat parasites, I'm going to get better. I'm like, that's not true. And the same thing is saying, if I treat Lyme, I'm going to get better. Simply not true. If you're chronically ill from Lyme disease, you don't just have really broke door fry, right? And that's kind of exactly. where I think people need to realize it's not going to be I found the thing that's making me sick. There is no one thing making you sick. It's not just parasites in your GI tract. It's not just Lyme disease. It's not just Babesia, right? It's not just mold exposure. All of them collectively are weakening your immune system. They're, they're causing inflammation. They're, they're doing a ton of things to you, right? But I think it's a mistake to think about one treatment or one pathogen as being the end all be all when it comes to that. So Give us an idea of where you're at today, right? I mean, it's just, it's so cool. I just want to say before I, I ask you my final question, Rich picks up. I just want to I just want to say, Jenny, that it's the story has been beautiful. It's so cool to hear how, and I'm sorry that you were there, but that you were so you lost hope. You were bedbound. You were just hoping you wouldn't wake up because you were just you've given up on life. And I personally know I, I can relate to that, right? I think many mm -hmm. people listening to this podcast can. So if you're listening and you're where Jenny was or you where I was, and you you want to give up on life listen to this story, listen to what Jenny went through. You can get better. And I mean, it's just so cool to see you doing so much better now, Jenny. And I'm not saying you're hundred percent, right? I know we're not, yeah. I'm not, you're not, but we have a better quality of life. We're functioning. We can be happy. We can do things. So I just want to stress for people listening, do not give up, keep fighting. Jenny's an inspiration. And Jenny, just give us an idea of where you're and how well you are doing today, because it's just so cool to be on here now for several hours as you talking to you, learning so much and just see this radical improvement in your health that we've just seen in the last few hours of talking to you. Uh, yeah, I would say I'm about 70% right now. And 
like I've always said transparently that I had to accept that I was going to be a chronically ill and disabled person for the rest of my life um, at a very young age. Uh, and I think that's something I want people to hear as a reality is just that the focus should be improving your quality of life, if anything, and then trying to fight to obtain remission. But a lot of us have to just accept and understand. And I mean, like, accept as in it takes a long time and it takes therapy and it takes the inner work for you to, to some people to just be able to accept, like, I'm never going to be a hundred percent again. And I'm not trying to like discount how hard it is to get to that point, but it's just, I think I've been sick for so long that I don't mourn like what I used to be because all I know is being sick. And there is some toxic positivity in the community of people who make a 100% recovery by different circumstances of like, whether it's like, well, they didn't get infected until adulthood or they're like me and they had access to all the financial means and the best doctors in the country. So they were able to make a turnaround completely. There's, you know, multifactorial issues in there, but I just want stress to people that like you can be as complex of a case as me and still make improvements and that there's nothing wrong with having to be sick and disabled. Like, yes, we deserve to feel healthy enough to where it doesn't impair like our activities of daily living and like make us mentally suffer. But like, I'd, I'm okay with functioning at 70% because like, I'm not mentally miserable anymore. Like I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious. Like, yeah, I'll never run again. Cause Lyme ruined my knees as a kid, but I'm still thankful that I can go on walks, long walks again with my dog. Cause that's the other thing is I desperately needed a hip surgery and that was keeping me so debilitated. So I had that done August of last year. It's been almost a year now. And like, so now I can walk like three miles a day, a year later. Whereas like two years ago, I was pretty much bedridden and like my heart rate would go to 160 if I stood up to go pee. And like, again, like I don't have the severe dysautonomia issues now. So, um, I say the main thing holding me back, I like, I wish that I could get to like 85% and I would be content with that. But what's holding me back is I have untreated basal ganglia encephalitis because uh, insurance has denied approval for IVIG four times. So my neurologist finally gave up. And then um, my IgG deficiency, um, again, I need IVIG for both those diagnoses um, because the doc five doctors have concluded like I'm never going to get fully in remission and be able to have like a somewhat developed immune system unless I get like immunomodulating therapy, whether it's IVIG, plasmapheresis, peptides, exosomes, you know, dendritic vaccines, like, you know, all these different things, but they're all so inaccessible even to me with someone who has a financially stable parent, especially during COVID. It's like, I can't fly anywhere safely because no one wears a mask. So it's like, I'm not going to get COVID just to go see a doctor. And then like, get worse. Like, I'm just not willing to lose that. So, um, I am healthy enough to where like I can work and I can take care of my pets and I'm independent. I do still have to rely on my dad financially for help with my medical bills. Like that's just the reality. And I used to feel a lot of shame and anger and cry about it when I was growing up, but I'm lucky to have a parent who promised me they would always make those sacrifices to, you know, get me as healthy as they can. And I wish that everyone in the community had that opportunity, but I also do want to stress that there are, that I've learned over the years, like there are inexpensive ways that, you know, it's going to be a lot slower of a game to get there to make the progress versus like how fast I progressed after hyperthermia. 
but I just want people to know that you can make progress. Like I was so, so, so sick for a solid 16 years. Like I would have some better phases where I did well, but I, it wouldn't even last a full year before I would relapse again. And it was never remission. It was just like quality of life improved. And then it wasn't until I recovered from my hip surgery that I could say that I finally have well-managed chronic pain. Like I live with like a four now, and I used to live with a nine out of 10 for almost my whole life. Um, so that was like a huge game changer too, of improving my quality of life is getting the joint surgery and getting the infectious burden down to where it wasn't causing like all these neural, like neuropathy and joint pain issues. So Jenny, talk to us about where you draw the line between, I'll use the term you used a minute ago, toxic positivity and ableism Mm -hmm. and a lack of faith, right? Because I mean, I think it's a, it's a very thin line where, um, you know, we have, we have folks who lose faith, right? They don't think they can get better. And because they have a mindset that doesn't allow them to get better, they're not getting better. But then, then we have the, the other extreme and the other extreme, of course, is this, this ableism and this, and this toxic uh, positivity. So how do you, how do you draw that line? Because it looks like you've done it very well. (laughs) I think part of it comes from the fact that I've been sick so long that I experienced a lot of the ableism from such a young age that I've had over a decade to like absorb it all and digest it and listen to others in the community and form a bond with other disabled people and so by the time I've like you know got to adulthood where I met like newly disabled and newly chronically ill people it was just, um, it's been, I guess, kind of frustrating. I think one thing is people who are newly sick should really listen to like, like in quotations, elders in the community, just because everyone, like we live in an ableist society where we're all born, we're raised in environments that encourage ableism. And like, I mean, we've seen it with COVID, like disabled people have been left behind from the get-go. Like we're just not valued in society. And I think with, I don't know, I just think with the disability community, like, especially with Lyme, that, I don't know, I feel like I'm ranting. There's just people who- You're you're not, you're not. I I, I don't think it's a rant at all. I think it's an important conversation that we have to have, right? Because I'm I'm concerned about, again, I'll use a term I'm making up, disabilism, right? Where people are, people are, are almost encouraged to, uh, you know, give up the fight, right? As opposed to, as opposed to having a mindset that will allow you to heal as far as you can heal and having a belief that you can heal so that you can have the improvement because, you know, the, 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 the emotional piece of healing is probably even more important than the physical uh, part of healing. I think it comes down to a lot of different, like social factors, like does this person have a community network of people, not just online, but like in their own home like do they have a safe home environment are they in like a domestic violence relationship are do they have narcissistic parents who aren't getting them treatment are they black indigenous or a person of color where they already have to deal with medical racism on top of that are they someone who lives in an urban or a rural area where like they don't even have access to anything other than like a one primary physician for a whole town like there's just so many factors like um depending on like where you grew up in the country. And I think I'm just one of those people who is very fortunate that I have always had a very good support network financially, socially, and like 
in a, I live in a good city. Like there's a, like tech, Texas does have some really good, like Houston and DFW, like we have some really good hospital systems. Uh, so I think that I have an, I mean, I know I have an advantage and then I'm white. Like I have, and then like, I have a white father, like that really people do not understand unless, I mean, minorities understand this, but other white people, like we really don't understand like how much of an advantage we have. And that's part of where I see like the racism and ableism within the community is that just getting the diagnosis of Lyme is a privilege in itself. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who can't even get that diagnosis. So when you see like, oh, it's this rich white women getting diagnosed with Lyme. Well, it's like, okay, well think about why that is. It's because we have better access to healthcare. So you're going to see like some toxicity of people who just have always had privilege in life because of the color of their skin and their economic and social financial status. And there's just people like that who sure there are some amazing people in the community, like Yolanda Hadid, like if you've read her book, like she talks about how, like, why isn't care accessible for everyone? Like if I can barely afford this, no one else can. So it's like, we need more people with privilege to approach it from that perspective, instead of shooting down on people who share their story, who are poor or black. And then other white people are like, well, we face ableism and gaslighting too. And it's like, no one said you didn't. It's just, this is just another additional burden. And these people who don't have financial privilege to get an early diagnosis before it's disseminated, which again, there are medical studies that show that people of color get diagnosed later in the disease process. So For it's sure. just, and it's just like a lot of people in the community who are affluent and have resources to care, don't want to acknowledge this. And they get very offended because they're bringing in lateral ableism and their own internalized ableism. Because Well, but, but Jenny, remember, you know, when, when you're in the fishbowl, you're always going to ask a question, what is water? Right. I mean, you know, that that's that's a part of their their experience as well. But we do have to have conversations like the one we're having now so that we can start to talk about the challenges with the system. And we should be talking about how to heal on a budget and we should be talking about, um, you know, the, the, the tools that can be available to everyone, because if we just focus purely on privilege and we and we purely focus on people like you who have had the resources that you've had, mm -hmm. it could cause some folks in the community to believe that they can't get better because, yeah. because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. And that's just simply not true, right? Because yeah. we've had this debate with people. I mean, when we post on social media uh, about a particular, about a particular um, celebrity, and, we, and we've had it both ways. We've had, we've had folks say celebrities are not accepting the responsibility of using their platform to advocate for the community, right? Mm -hmm. And they criticize those celebrities who may or may not be in a place where they can do that emotionally. Um, mm -hmm. And then when we do profile the celebrities who are willing to be, um, you know, willing to use their platform to, um, to advocate for the community, the argument we have is, well, the reason I can't get better is because I don't have the resources and I don't have the privilege that a celebrity has, right? Which is simply not true, right? Because in the end, Jenny, yes, you had some privilege. Yes, you have supportive family. Yes, you have family that has financial resources. But in the end, it was actually your resourcefulness that allowed you to get better. Yes, you had access to more resources. Yes, you were you were because because you had some uh, financial protections, you were able to get to things earlier. But in the end, you you kept you kept trying and trying and trying and trying. And if it didn't work, you fought through it, and then you try something else, and you try something else, and you try something else, right? And that's really what allows people to have success. And it's and, and it's actually the resourcefulness not the resources that get that people to get better. So I, I think we have to be careful when we're having this conversation so we don't scare people who are not wealthy into believing they can't get better.
Yeah. And I don't want that to ever be my intention. I just think it's very, especially after talking to like hundreds of other people who are sick, it's just, I think it's very important to at least recognize that so that people can feel seen and heard because that's one of the most important, that's part of why I'm so vocal about everything. It's like, one, I want to raise awareness, but I also want people to feel understood and heard because no one understood me as an angry, scared kid hurting. Um, and it's like, I can brunt the ableism from people like online and like to the point where they just block me because I get them back so good they like can't cope. But anyway, um, I think the, the problem is that people will, instead of just being like, okay, I hear that medical racism is another barrier in the Lyme community, instead of just saying like, hey, I get that. And like, like, let me support you and help raise awareness. It's like people get extremely defensive and like traumatize BIPOC people with Lyme even more than they, like they don't need more trauma. So like, that's what I mean by that. And it's, and then the other thing is, um, like you said, I don't want people to think there's no hope but realistically, not everyone is going to go back to 100%. And that's just something that we also need to acknowledge. And that, well, that's what the toxic... Okay. But let's talk about that because, I, you know, I, I, did want, I did want to visit that with you. What is 100% and whoever gets 100% and, and, you know, like, you know, we're all going to age. Well, our bodies are going to change. We're swimming in a toxic soup. I mean, we're all going to have these changes in our lives and there are going to be, there are going to be, challenges that we're all going to face. And what does that, what does that hundred percent mean? So think about people like, okay. Think about like, for example, like Megan, like there's no way you could ever say that she's going to not be disabled. Like she's had 12 joint surgeries. She's a wheelchair user. Like it, that's just her reality now. Okay. I developed epilepsy because my Lyme went untreated. Like I, I don't have seizures now because I'm on Keppra and like, it's thankfully it's controlled right now but like epilepsy is a disability. And if I start having seizures actively again, like I may not be able to, like they may take my license away for, you know, a six month period. So it's like, it's not even like, oh, I have to have this identity of being disabled. Like it's who I am. It's like, no, like it's just, it's almost, it's society is what labels us as disabled because being disabled, we're only, a lot of us are only deemed disabled because society places barriers on our access to care and just like commuting around in life. And people just, I think a lot of people in the Lyme community see the word disability as like something threatening and bad when that's just because that's the way society raises us. And I know it's like so much more nuanced and I like, I don't even feel like I'm the best person because I'm not a disability, like advocate and justice, disability justice advocate no, but, as much but, as I just. No, but Jenny, let's talk about that, right? Because we're, we're at the transformation portion of the story, right? And, and, and the truth is the reason we we're really, really coveting a, an interview with you. And we chased you for a long time is because, you know, we value the transformation that you've made. I mean, you're one of the bravest people in the community. You're one of the, one of the people that is willing to challenge folks aggressively. And I think if we all have the mindset that we just want to get better, and we, we want to do as much as we can to help as many people in the community, then those types of challenges are going to be embraced. And you know, we've always embraced you, right? I mean, you've challenged us many, many times, right? And we weren't 
in any way, shape or form offended by that. We were not in any way, shape or form wanting to block you. I wanted to engage you even more because the goal is to be as good as we can be. And in my view, the only way that we can be as good as we can be is when people are pointing out where we're, where we're not doing as well as we can do it, right? And you do that yeah. better than anyone else, right? And I don't think that's something that you, know, that, that you would have been doing and you would have been as brave to do had you not gone through what you went through, right? I mean, you went yeah. through the hells of fire. You were willing to give up. You were willing to just say, I don't want to do this anymore. And after getting to the other side of that, you became an advocate. So talk about that transformation and how this this journey that you went on transformed you into this aggressive advocate that at least we here at, uh, at, 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 at take boot camp find to be very charming. <laughs> yeah, I can be a little much for some people. Uh, I'm pretty obnoxious, but I really don't care. I think I'm just so passionate about preventing other people from going through the same hell and feeling isolated and alone and unfortunately slash fortunately because I say unfortunately because it shouldn't take this but I think once I became a registered nurse um, that kind of changed the game and how I was treated by physicians and peers and I'm taken so much more seriously now in appointments I don't have to make my dad or brother go with me like I'm not I don't go into these appointments like terrified that I'm just going to be disbelieved and gaslit because like I know my stuff so well that like, I just, I outsmart most physicians in the realm of root cause medicine. So it's like, I, it's just when I, when you tell them like, oh, I'm a nurse, like they know they can't get away with as much gaslighting as they can with an average lay person. So I think I take advantage of that background of like fiercely advocating because just having the credentials behind my name. And that's why I have it on like my social media handles because other people were like, you should add that so that unfortunately that's what it's going to take for people to listen. And so uh, I think just once I finally got my formal diagnosis, because I was already a nurse for two years when I finally got diagnosed properly. And so then once I realized like, oh, this is super complex and like, I'm not going to get better. And like, no one knows how to treat this. I just started getting super passionate about making the information more accessible to the masses because I've always been passionate about public health and I think community health and educating lay people is so important. Um, preventative medicine is the key to prevent suffering, obviously, and I'm passionate about that. And so I think that altogether just drives me to never shut up about this stuff. Well, but Jenny, and, and in the end, right, the, the uh, medical system is failing both the physicians and mm -hmm. the other and medical professionals, and it's failing us as a patient community, right? Mm -hmm. Because really what's happened is the industrial medical complex has set us up into believing that we, when we don't feel well, we should walk into a doctor's office and the doctor will be able to quickly diagnose us and give us a pill and get better, right? So we're not encouraged to respond with ability. And the doctor is now put under tremendous pressure because he, she, or they are in a position where they don't have a lot of information. They don't have a person that's taking responsibility for, the, for, their, for their, um, their, their own uh, health. And we have this conflict. So on the one side of the coin, we have patients who are feeling gaslit on a regular basis because we are. And then we have doctors who are burning out, right? Yeah. The system's failing both sides. It doesn't work. And it's all because we've been set up to believe that the, the system, the industrial complex will resolve all of our problems quickly. So we don't have to take responsibility, which by the way, we here at Take Bootcamp defined as responding with ability. 
and they are expected to be miracle workers. It's impossible, Jenny. It's an impossible yeah. task, and it's really just that you know a, a a system that's designed to enrich a very small group of people who are either producing uh, devices or producing pharmaceuticals. I mean, isn't that really where we are? Yes, uh, capitalism is a nightmare. We need universal basic income and universal health care. We need big pharma and insurance should not be able to dictate our access to care and what physician like insurance is practicing medicine instead of physicians like it's cruelty and the good physicians are burning out like you said because the system's just collapsing and it's like people who are good who are well-intentioned and pure and care that's why they're burning out because they care and they just see so much suffering and they feel helpless and so then they start suffering like mentally and because like healthcare, like suicide and burnout, and I don't even think burnout's the right word because we're being, um, not what's the word? Um, we're being abused by the for-profit healthcare system. So I like when you're in an abusive relationship, I don't think it's burnout. I think it's just like, you can't take the abuse anymore. And so good nurses and good doctors are leaving. Like it's just- yeah. Again, I, I think we can define burnout in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, uh, again, uh, if you want to use another term to define you know, exploitation, and that's what I was looking for. Okay, I mean, look, you could, <laughs> you, you could, but but in the end, there's an emotional response to you know to the again the abuse that doctors are taking as well, right? So yeah. on this podcast, we always love to point our fingers at the doctors and the failures of the doctors and the gaslighting of doctors. But you know what? It's just not you know the people become doctors because they want to help. They become doctors yeah. because they want to help people improve their lives. That's why they want to become doctors. They're not bad people who are looking to, you know, to tell you you're not sick. That's not who yeah. they are, right? I mean, it's just simply not, it's simply not a fair perspective. We're never going to solve these problems if we don't properly identify the problems. And it's, again, it's another one of the reasons why, you know, we've come to love you because you're willing to challenge those, those types of, of, of issues. And again, I, I will disagree with you about capitalism another day, but I, I do think that we can I, I do think we can we can agree that we're never going to solve this problem unless we look at both sides of this problem. And, and it isn't just the patient population being abused. It is also oh, yeah. it is also physicians and nurses and nurse oh, yeah. practitioners and other really good people who are in a position where they cannot help. The people they 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 feel called to help for various reasons, and you know, and patient empowerment is one of the one of the things that again I think aggressive advocates like you um, are 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 helping us to uh, understand better. So uh, again, we 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 do love you, Jenny. You're awesome, and uh, and your transformation has really been beautiful. Both I think from the standpoint of the achievement that you've been able to make in your health journey, but also in the transformation you've made and the leadership role you've been willing to take in this community. It's really very powerful. And we really thank you for being willing to put yourself out there the way that you do and in a very, very brave way, especially for someone. Again, I, I'm an old man, so I'm, this is not, I'm not making an ageist observation, but as an old man who has children around the same age as you, I admire you for being as brave and, uh, and, and as aggressive as you are at, at such a young age. Thank you. Um, so, Jenny, talk to us about what you would do now. I mean, your 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 mom and dad have been really, really um, awesome people, right? Um, and uh, one one of the things we've learned in this podcast is that you know you're not going to get better if you don't have a good support system, right? Yeah. Uh, and yes, you you know you were blessed with good parents, but I also think you were good as well in that 
you had a very healthy relationship with your parents and you let them know what it is that you needed in order for them to be the good parents that they were. So talk about how you as a child advocated for yourself with your own parents so that they could meet your needs. Um, again, I am one of the lucky ones and it's, it honestly just like disgusts me that not everyone gets to have this story. Um, I remember an element, like, of course, I don't remember the issues when I was very little, but in elementary school, when I started having symptoms of Bartonella after that cat scratch, uh, my parents believed me, but, you know, doctors kept saying it's because she's an athlete, but I was literally crying myself to sleep, like, after playing softball, it's like, that's not normal, like, um, but my parent, like, I would just tell my parents what I needed. Like, you know, I need a hot bath. I need to be massaged. And like, they would do it. Or like, I need to sleep in your bed. Cause I just like, can't fall asleep. Like they just, they met me where I needed it them. Um, and like, they, they just let, they essentially let themselves be my like emotional punching bag. Um, said some ugly things to them with, when my encephalitis was flaring. Um, right. but they, understood at the time they thought it was just like me yelling out of anger from chronic pain but it was really brain on fire um but like I just I I don't have like words of wisdom because I just got lucky that my parents listened from day one and when I was 14 and woke up one day and was like I can barely walk my mom believed me and fought against the doctors who didn't believe me um, but let me, let me, let me, again, I'm going to challenge you. I, I appreciate humility and it's another one of your charming traits, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's always, I don't think it's always healthy to articulate something from a humble standpoint, because one of the things we learned from the two alpha gals, for example, is uh -huh. uh, the reason they've been successful on their journey. And, and we certainly want to encourage our listeners to listen to their podcast is when we interviewed them, what they said was we first learned to support one another. Then what we did is we then spoke to our spouses and told our spouses what we needed so that we could be healthy, you know, when dealing with this very dangerous um, you know, condition that they had with alpha-gap. Then yeah. we spoke to our children. Then we spoke to our social circle. And they kept advocating for themselves and letting people know what they needed so that they could be safe and not be exposed to mammal products in their life. Mm. But they advocated for themselves. And again, despite your humility, you did the same thing, Jenny. You did the same <laughs> thing. And 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 again, reason I don't I want I want to challenge you on this is because if you just say, hey, it was luck, then the people who don't have that kind of aggressive um, you know, advocate in their lives will feel like, well, I can't ever get better, which is really okay, yeah. No, 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 bad. that's not my intention. <laughs> I understand that, right? But because so, so and that's the challenge of being a little too humble because you are articulate and you're aggressive and you and you advocated. Or yourself to your parents, which then forced them to listen. And they wanted to, and they're good people. I'm not trying to take it away from them. Yeah. But they wanted to listen, but you were articulate and you let them know what you needed and you continue to do that, which is again, why you're having the success you're having, right? It's not just luck, it's advocacy, it's patient empowerment, and it's willing yeah. to take responsibility. Again, respond with ability, socially, emotionally, and physically. I think maybe part of it is because like I got sick at such a young age that I had to just be reliant on parents and adults around me to do the a lot of the ad advocacy for me, especially like within the medical system. But I will say that because I've always been outspoken, like my mom always said, tell me how you really feel. Um, 
I don't, I think that from a very young age, when I was sick, like if people were ableist to me, I was, sometimes I was very embarrassed and afraid to fight back. But in general, I was able to say like, no, like my disabled life is worthy. I can take up as much space as you. I am sick. I know I am sick. It's not all in my head. Like you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but I know my story. I know what's happening in my body. I'm not going to let people question my reality. So I think like preventing myself from like self gaslighting and like mentally abusing myself from the get go was something that really helped. And overall is just like reaffirming to myself, like this is real. What your experience is real and you deserve help and you deserve answers and don't give up until someone listens to you. Someone will listen eventually. So from my own that would, I'd say on my own end of advocating for myself from a young age, it was just knowing from the get-go, like, I know I'm sick and I'm not going to give up until someone listens. Right. So let me focus on something else with you again. It's, it's something I wanted to challenge you. I have four children. One of, one of my children has special needs. And uh, I've had people ask me, how is it different parenting your child with special needs as opposed to your other children? And my, my response is, it's no different. Because every one of my children had special needs. Every one of my children had uh, different issues that we had to deal with together during the course of our parenting experience. So my child with Down syndrome was no different than parenting any of my other children because every person has abilities. Every person has limitations. So I think one yeah. of the dangers with using these terms like disability is that what we're not doing is we're not looking at the full spectrum of who we are as humans and, and, and how we are going to be gifted in some areas. And we're going to have, you know, limitations in other areas. Like God has made some of us with very, very special talents in some places that everyone has talents. I don't care who you are. And, and some of us are, you know, not going to be as talented. So I think we have to be careful when we're using terms like this, because everyone, there's no perfect person. That person doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And 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 we 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 should be spending more time focusing on the superpowers and the things that make each one of us unique and special, rather than on those things that are causing us to have challenges. Well, uh, so I mean, that's part of the problem is seeing disability as something inherently negative or like a bad connotation when there's it's just a word. People, but that's our ableist society. It's like people think it's some dirty word. They think it's such a dirty word that they have to come up with all these euphemisms like specially abled or differently abled or some straight up slurs instead of just saying the word disabled. Um, like even special needs is not an appropriate term because the education system has weaponized that to prevent disabled children from getting their basic needs in the system. So that's why it should just be teachers who work with disabled students. Like that's just what it should be titled. Not because they're, like you said, their needs aren't special. They're just needs. Like all children have different needs. Everyone has needs. Yeah. And so it's very damaging. Like I cringe when people hyper-focus on like those euphemisms, like differently abled um, or special needs when it's like, it's just disabled. Like it's just a part, it's just a piece of who you are. It's like, I am disabled and I am white. Like those are just two parts of who I am. Like neither one is my full identity, but they're just, they're a part of my identity and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's part of where society and even within the chronic illness community in itself, like that's just a huge barrier of understanding that people don't get because society is just overall so toxic with ableism and has tried to make everyone think that having limitations to your daily abilities is somehow inherently bad when, like I've said before, 
the only the thing that limits disabled people in society is our inaccessibility like you know in the classroom or like in transportation or even just something as simple as people not willing to wear masks so like immunocompromised people can't go out so it's just disabled it's not a dirty word it's not a bad thing and it's just a piece and a part of who we are it doesn't define our entirety so now let's talk about your mom and dad um, who have been so wonderful for you on this journey. If God mm -hmm. forbid your mom came walking into your apartment right after this podcast and she had a tick biting her, what would you recommend the, that she do so she wouldn't have to go on a chronic journey? <laughs> Call Dr. Offit. Uh, <laughs> um, no, honestly, I, you know, I always tell people, you know, properly remove the tick and send it out to one of the labs that because they're going to get better results on that versus your blood work, especially because it can take up to six weeks to even start mounting a response to the um, infections. So I always tell people that. Um, and then I would ask, I recommend, you know, obviously it's not medical advice, but push your doctor to give you six weeks of doxy and then run a full tick-borne panel no matter what, um, because even though it's more expensive to throw down a few hundred bucks for that test in the beginning, Think about the thousands to tens of thousands you spend on treatment if they become chronic and you don't hit them hard in the beginning. Um, so I always try to emphasize that to people and maybe even try to start on like some basic antimicrobials like artemisinin. And again, not medical advice, but just I would try to get them started on treatment immediately because I want people to also understand this is part of why we don't shut up about this, because if you do catch these in the acute phase there is still a lot of hope for a full recovery and even being completely cured. And it's just, if we can get Western medicine to start focusing on that and hitting it rigorously right away and stopping all the misinformation of don't treat until they have symptoms or like a bull, like not treating as soon as you see a bullseye rash, like we should be doing prophylactic treatment. And then we would see so many better outcomes and less chronic people. So I would try to, I would freak out personally because I have so much PTSD but if it's people around me, I would be able to say, like, calm them down and be like, you're not going to become me because we're catching it right away. Because I Jenny, think that's, yeah, part of it. You, you did not disappoint. You were as charming <laughs> as we thought you would be. So we thank you so much for spending time with our community here at Tick Camp. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I um, rant on forever and the you, abyss. You, you did not rant on at all. It was an awesome conversation. We thank you for allowing us to challenge you okay. and for being as brave as you were to yeah. walk and you are to answer every question that we could possibly think of and, <laughs> and be as kind as you were to take all of our challenges head on. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Jenny Quante. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jenny Quante, please visit our Instagram page at Jenny Quante. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to you by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.